The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Most people are overconfident of their value on this planet. Most people can be done without. That's a quote from American serial killer, William George Bonin, today's topic, the freeway killer. We've all heard of notorious serial killers like Jeffrey Dahmer, Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, Pogo the Clown, but have you heard of the life and crimes of William Bonin? Bonin is often overlooked on the rosters of serial killers of the late 70s and early 80s, even though his crimes were just as evil as those of his contemporaries. The lack of a Netflix series, documentaries, and recent books have kept his crimes in the dark. Bill Bonin was one of America's most prolific serial killers, found guilty of killing 14 confirmed victims, but very likely killed at least 21 boys and men in just a year's time in Southern California. Like nearly all serial killers, his tragic backstory influenced his killings. He tortured his victims with some of the same punishments he himself received as a child. And like all serial killers, he went a lot further in hurting his victims than anyone had ever gone with him. Bonin drove around in a customized van he called the Death Van to hunt for wandering boys to rape, torture, and strangle. Afterwards, he dumped their bodies on the side of the road like they were no better than trash because that's how he saw them. The sexual violence that Bonin inflicted on these boys was extremely shocking and disturbing to even the hardened detectives who found them. And unusually, Bonin often did not act alone. Unlike most serial killers, he had accomplices. Plural. He had not one, but four different accomplices that helped him with most of his murders. Young men who were equal parts afraid of him and fascinated by him. They were like a serial killer's version of a dark wizard's apprentice. They were men who were willing to torture and rape children as well, or at least cheer William on literally. They shared a sort of admiration for Bonin, the unquestioned leader of their deranged little club. Bonin's reign of terror came to an end when one of his accomplices turned on him in an attempt to save his own ass. And then his final victim was rescued by police just before he was strangled. And Bonin then was taken into custody. And he soon gave a detailed confession given casually as if he was chatting about a baseball game over a cup of coffee, uh, which would further sicken and shock detectives, families of victims, and the jury who sentenced him to death. 
How did he go from a tortured and abused boy to a grown man intent on inflicting even more of the pain he experienced in his childhood on others? All this and more on this 1970s serial killer true crime murder van edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. Hail all the gods of Time Suck. They've been watching over us lately. A uh, little, little extra. Nimrod, Lucifina, Bojangles, and Triple M. Uh, thanks to all the new listeners coming from a, a variety of different places. Hope you're uh, enjoying the start of your ride here. Uh, hope I just had fun in Columbus, Ohio. Hope I will have fun coming up soon in both San Francisco and Spokane. Cobbs in San Francisco, October 8th and 9th. Uh, tickets are moving. Spokane on October 15th through the 17th. I, I assume they are too as well. I haven't looked. More Symphony of Insanity tour dates at dancummins.tv. Uh, fitting for today's episode, an Evil Eyes Time Suck merch collection is now in the store at badmagicmerch.com. Got a t-shirt, a framed wall canvas in two sizes, 18 by 24, uh, 24 by 36. Uh, and that is feet. They're gigantic. No, it's inches. Uh, and the eyes aren't, are, are not random. They belong to past evil suck subjects, Chikatilo, Albert Fish, Ed Kemper, you know, John Wayne Gacy, Richard Ramirez, Yahim Kroll, Jeffrey Dahmer, um, you know, uh, Dennis Rader, Ted Bundy, Joseph Fritzl, David Berkowitz. Uh, Bonin's eyes would fit in well there. And how about that? Uh, how about that's it for today's announcements? Got a big Jehovah's Witness themed Time Sucker updates at the end of that uh, show today. Getting lots of feedback from that episode, uh, which I'm very happy about. And then uh, a lot of true crime to get through before that. Let's talk about murderous shit and uh, also bingo. That'll make sense in about a half hour or so. Pretty straightforward setup today. The story of a very twisted dude. Going to go over a little bit of the lay of the land for this episode first. Get a bit familiar with Downey, California. Then shortly after that, we'll dive into the timeline, going over Bonin's life, murders, incarceration, and execution. Spend a lot of time talking about, you know, what a great guy he was and uh, how he was, you know, possibly, if not probably, framed for murders that my dad likely committed. Where was my dad? 1979, 1980. At home, helping raise baby me. Not for several months during the middle of Bonin's murder spree, he wasn't. Supposedly, he was in Anchorage, Alaska, working construction jobs while my mom and baby me were still in Idaho. Was he really in Alaska? I don't fucking know. Neither does my mom. So it's hard to say. So, you know, pretty normal time suck treatment for today. Also, before the timeline, uh, going to explain a bit about how the perception of Bonin's crimes uh, being gay on gay crimes may have hindered the investigation into catching him, especially initially. Bonin was a homosexual man who targeted male victims, many of which it seems law enforcement at the time seemed to think were homosexual, even if they weren't. So it's worth looking at how the homosexual community in general was viewed when and where Bonin was killing. And in order to do that, we'll need to look real briefly into America's historical attitudes towards homosexuality. Hint, not good. Then, much like with the uh, Grim Sleeper slash Southside Slayer suck from two weeks ago, a few other prolific serial killers were targeting similar victims in the same area before, uh, during, after Bonin's murders. That also, I'm sure, made it harder for police to catch him. So I'll introduce you to these two other creeps. Two other, two other really sweet, kind, never did nothing to nobody dudes. Also given the same moniker of the freeway killer. Police didn't know that three men, not one, were killing young men and boys in similar ways in the same area for a while. Uh, very similar to the, the Southside Slayer killings in South Central, which would occur a few years later. And then it will be timeline time. So let's start off by heading to Downey, California, 
Uh, Bill Bonin killed in 1979, 1980 in Los Angeles and Orange County, uh, Los Angeles County and Orange County, California. Back in the same area we were just uh, just two weeks ago with the Grim Sleeper Killer and those Southside Slayer murders. So we'll just rewind the clock about five years from the beginning of those murders and drive just a few short miles east. I had no idea when these topics were picked that the time frame for uh, the, the murders and the area of the murders would be so similar. Bill Bonin lived in Down- Downey, California the whole time he killed, and he lived no more than five miles from where the Grim Sleeper serial killer Lonnie Franklin lived in South Central. Uh, to quote some of the greatest yacht rockers of all time, Hall and Oates, so close, but so far away. Bonin was a white dude living on the other side of the tracks from South Central, so to speak. He lived on the other side of the 710 freeway, just below the 105 freeway. And like Lonnie, one of so many serial killers plaguing LA during the 70s and 80s. Uh, lived only a few miles away, but lived in a very different type of community than South Central in the 80s. While much of South Central was being populated by a massive influx of African-Americans in the 1940s, right? The Great Migration, roughly 200,000, primarily during the World War II years alone, just a few miles away. Downey was still populated and much less densely by predominantly white white and Hispanic agricultural workers. Black residents were literally not allowed to move there due to horrible discriminatory real estate laws and practices. We went over that in the Grim Sleeper Suck. And Downey, whites and Hispanics were growing and picking oranges. Lots and lots of orange groves for the most part. So many. Lots of farmland just outside of the LA suburbs. Despite the Downey community being founded way back in 1873, it stayed largely rural, very agrarian for over 70 years. It was not incorporated until 1956. Shortly after World War II, suburban homes and factories began to steadily replace all of Downey's farms. Downey is one of California's first, if not the first, you know, quote unquote, planned community track housing, carefully plotted industrial and commercial areas, all being thoughtfully designed before being built. Uh, It soon became a land of sock hops and soda fountains. Between 1940 and 1960, the population of Downey tripled, mostly due to the expansion of the aerospace industry and then peripheral industries uh, around that. Over 21,000 good-paying industrial jobs were created in that time frame. The way it's written about in numerous sources, Downey sounds uh, very very leave-it-to-beaver-esque. Very father knows best. Rows and rows of similar looking, primarily single story homes, now called mid-century modern. Lots of good paying, largely nine to five jobs. A lot of homes being run off of of a single income. A A lot of kids playing baseball at the park, you know, basketball in the driveway, that kind of thing. Picture a lot of dads washing and waxing their cars in their driveways. A lot of families piling into those same cars, driving west, heading to the beach on the weekends. Burbank vibes. 1936 aviation pioneer, Jerry Volte purchased an airstrip in Downey, which was previously owned by E.M. Smith. Within the next few years, Smith turned the airstrip into his very own airplane assembly plant. The Volte factory developed 13,000 planes in Downey during World War II alone, one of the nation's largest producers of military aircraft. The Volte company also gained recognition for employing a lot of women in its factories. Uh, Volte aircraft was eventually renamed North American Aviation, then renamed again North American Rockwell, then later bought out by Boeing. Actually didn't fully close its doors uh, as part of the aerospace industry under Boeing until 1999. Uh, Random trivia, the large aircraft hangars eventually housed Downey Studios, where several blockbuster films would be produced, like Spider-Man, The Italian Job, Iron Man. Then in 2012, Downey Studios uh, demolished to make room for the new Downey Promenade Shopping Center. A former center of production becomes a consumer hub where you can buy all kinds of products made anywhere but America. Sadly, very uh, representative 
of the U.S. at large, right? Post-World War II American way. Now, from the 1960s to 2016, the population, uh, population of Downey grew from 82,505 to 113,267. Also, during the 80s, Downey became home to many middle and upper class, uh, or middle and upper middle class, second and third generation Mexican-American families. Uh, random, 1962, the first ever Taco Bell opened in Downey. And while the first McDonald's did not open in Downey, the third, the third one did. Uh, the third McDonald's opened on Lakewood Boulevard in Downey on August 18th, 1953. And that particular McDonald's is now the oldest McDonald's in the world uh, to still be standing. While Bonham was killing in and around Downey, the city of 88,000, then 110,000, roughly now, was a working class LA County suburb full of lots of places to grab a quick bite, lots of, lots of good jobs, relatively little crime. And metal fans, you'll like this trivia, James Hetfield, frontman for Metallica, born and raised through his sophomore year of high school in Downey, went to Downey High School for his freshman and sophomore years. His sophomore year ended in 1979. Bonin began killing that same spring, killing teenagers around Hetfield's age of 16 at that time. Had Hetfield hitchhiked and been picked up by the wrong driver, no more enter Sandman. When Bonin first began to kill, a lot of hitchhiking was still going on in Downey. Uh, it was very common still. It's how he snagged many of his victims. Hitchhiking was just starting to fall out of fashion, but things still felt safe for many in Downey, especially early on in his killing spree, despite other serial killers already having been uh, active in the area. Most of those killers hadn't been caught yet, though. And since most serial killers in the 70s and, and before seemed to target women, most still seem to target women, I imagine teen boys still felt pretty safe and sticking their thumbs out to grab a free ride to the beach or whatever. So now that we know a little bit about Downey, let's talk about Downey's and America's attitude towards homosexuality when Bonin was doing his terrible thing. Uh, Bonin was a gay man, and it strongly seems that his crimes being initially perceived as gay crimes led law enforcement to react a little more slowly than they otherwise maybe would have. Uh, just like law enforcement, the media, and the local community didn't seem to prioritize the lives of crack-addicted black sex workers and the grim sleeper killings, the lives of the marginalized community of homosexual men also didn't seem to be given priority treatment in the highway, the freeway killer cases. Uh, even though not all of his victims were gay. Bill Bonin was a member of an extremely oppressed, hated group, even during the pretty progressive decade of the 70s in L.A. County. America's puritanical roots can be seen clearly in our nation's largely deplorable treatment of our homosexual community over the years. In the 17th century, living a life of uh, being openly gay was almost completely unheard of. Homosexual acts like sodomy often carry the punishment of death. In 1624, Richard Cornish executed in Virginia for alleged homosexual acts with a servant. Alleged. In Essex County, Massachusetts, Elizabeth Johnson fined and publicly whipped for unseemly practices with another maid, attempting to do that which man and woman do. Interestingly, uh, in many Native American tribes, homosexuality was co completely accepted at that time. In 1698, a French explorer among the Illinois tribe remarked on a number of men living as women, uh, as, he, as he said, and the prevalence of homosexual activity in various villages. They hadn't been taught yet that such a life was sinful. And they seem to have been uh, doing just fine. Crazy. Uh, America's still not too progressive in the 17th century. Uh, it's, yeah. 1636, Massachusetts, Reverend John Cotton proposes including sexual relations between women in the definition of sodomy for the first time. I uh, wanted to make sure any, any women eating, eating some of that sweet devil puss, right? Could be put to death, same as a man. No pussy looking. No, no pussy licking. I don't know why looking. No pussy looking or licking on Reverend Cotton's watch. 18th century, things not good for uh, homosexuals in America. In 1714, uh, 
province of South Carolina adopts English common law and criminalizes buggery, punishing same-sex intercourse with the death penalty and the forfeiture of property. But just for dudes, women, they get whipped and shipped. Puritans hated puss, but they hated two dicks touching even more or one dick touching a butt just around the corner from a dick. All the colonies had similar laws on the books or would by the end of the century. 1785, Joseph Ross executed for sodomy in Pennsylvania. Meanwhile, numeral historical references of priests and explorers, etc., running across various tribes were dude-on-dude or woman-on-woman action, same-sex love, no big deal. Things don't get a ton better for American homosexuals in the 19th century, not in the U.S. at least. While many nations, many, many nations around the world began to decriminalize homosexuality, America uh, gave, gave it a hard nope. No dicks on dicks. No dicks on butts, no dicks. No puss on puss. We must protect the children. Uh, during the 1880s and 1890s, when America's first drag queen, William Dorsey Swan, organizes a series of drag balls in Washington, D.C. for some members of the underground gay community there, Swan is arrested. The first documented case uh, of being arrested for female impersonation in the U.S. Even wearing women's clothing as a dude, punishable by arrest and jail time. And Swan later died in 1925 in Hancock, Maryland. He was so despised by the local government and mainstream American culture, uh, local officials literally burned his house down. Too filthy to allow anyone to live where a man who lusted after men had lived. A man who dressed as a woman. Ugh, so many fucking ignorant, irrational morons have helped steer our culture over the years. So many still do. Uh, in the early 20th century, it's uh, still almost completely unheard of for anyone to be openly gay in America. But of course, because sexual preference is definitely part of nature, not a whimsical choice. Homosexuals, uh, you know, existed then as, as they do now and always have. So we just relegated almost entirely to the shadows. 1907, German paper supportive of homosexuals prints an anonymous letter from Boston, which reports, here as in Germany, homosexuality extends throughout all classes, from the slums of the North End to the highly fashionable Back Bay. Reliable homosexuals have told me names that reach into the highest circles of Boston, New York, and Washington, D.C., names which have left me speechless with astonishment. I believe this anonymous writer. Homophobia, still so alive and well in 1917, U.S. immigration law is modified to ban, quote, Persons with abnormal sexual instincts read homosexuals from entering the U.S. Shortly thereafter, some public pushback begins. 1924, Henry Gerber, six other men in Chicago, found the Society for Human Rights, the U.S. first known gay rights organization. And what a battle that society would face. The very next year, 1925, Jewish immigrant Eva Kochever uh, opens Eve Adams Tea Room in New York City's Greenwich Village. The lesbian gathering place had a sign at the door which read, men are admitted, but not welcome. <laughs> 1926, the tea room is raided by the police and Eva is deported after being charged with disorderly conduct and writing an obscene book titled Lesbian Love. Less than 100 years ago, I would have been uh, put in prison, my business destroyed for defending her right to be lesbian in the land of the free. 1934, L.A. County, Hollywood adopts the so-called Hayes Code, which stipulates, among other things, that sex perversion or any inference to it is forbidden on the screen. Forbidden! We must protect the children! And that code will stick around until 1968. Not until 1968, 11 years before Bonin starts to kill, are there any openly gay characters in a Hollywood film? That first happens in The Pawnbroker, 1968 film about a, a victim of the Holocaust, by the way, not a, not a gay love story or anything. 1935, famed Austrian psychoanalyst Sigmund Freud writes letter to an American mother urging compassion and tolerance for homosexuality in the U.S. It is largely ignored and laughed off. Illinois will become the first state to decriminalize homosexuality, uh, homosexual contact between consenting adults, but will not do that until 1962. 
1971, 2,800 gay men are arrested for having sex in San Francisco just that year, forced to register as sex offenders. 1973, the American Psychiatric Association finally declares that homosexuality is not always a psychiatric disorder. 1976, Harvey Milk is appointed to San Francisco's Board of Permit Appeals, makes him the first openly gay city commissioner in U.S. history. 1978, Milk wins election to the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, the city's legislative body becoming the first non-incumbent openly gay man in the U.S. to win election to any sort of public office the year right before Bonin starts killing. Also in 1978, uh, fellow San Francisco board member Dan White resigns, then assassinates Harvey Milk and Mayor George Moscone, executes them up close and personal with the Smith & Wesson 38 caliber revolver. And he gets a seven-year sentence for two fucking murders. Only serves five years. Ends up charged with uh, manslaughter because he was depressed when he killed them. I'm gonna have to do that suck someday. It's a whole thing that's called the Twinkie defense. It's ridiculous. Uh, there were riots when his bullshit sentence was handed down. Uh, many saw his sentencing being so insanely light because of the men, you know, one of the men he shot was the openly gay milk. Some saw him as a bit of a hero for gunning milk down, uh, you know, unarmed and cold blood. I point all this history out because 1979 and 1980 was not that long ago. And California, I think, is seen by many as one of the most liberal parts of America, the most progressive, specifically San Francisco and the LA area, super accepting of different sexual persuasions. And it largely is now, but it was not back in 1979 and 1980. Not really. Yes, the whole, uh, you know, counterculture revolution, largely centered in Central and Southern California in the late 60s and early 60s. Or, I mean, sorry, early 70s was progressive in many ways. You know, the hippie revolution, peace and love. It was in full bloom. And because of that, I think it can be easy to imagine California being totally cool with homosexuality in 1979, but that is not true, not at all. Homosexuality was still seen as not just a sin, but as a crime in many parts of America, even in relatively progressive California, especially in a conservative California community like Downey and in ultra conservative Orange County nearby where Bonin killed several of his victims. By the 70s, yes, there were gay parades in many American cities like San Francisco and West Hollywood. No, the police were not shutting them all down, not always, but homosexual life certainly was not celebrated or condoned by the majority of America. The 1970s did feature the first religious acceptance of the LGBTQ plus community in American history. The first gay minister was ordained in 1972 by the United Church of Christ. Parents and friends of lesbians and gays did form in 1972 an important group. However, it's important to note that these monumental victories were still widely scorned by the majority of the country. These were the exceptions to the rule. Uh, gay people remained one of the most hated groups in America. Openly gay regular characters were just barely making their way into a very small number of U.S. TV shows. By 1980, 120 of the largest corporations in America did adopt personnel policies prohibiting discrimination based on sexual orientation. 22 states did end all restrictions on sex between consulting, consenting adults, but the majority of states still had not. And then in 1980, AIDS reached America and really increased a lot of stigma and shame already associated with being gay, especially with being a gay man. Uh, this per pervasive cultural attitude arguably made it a lot easier for Bonin to get away with killing like he did and who he did. A man sexually attacking young teen boys and other men, arguably easier than it would have been uh, you know, for him to keep killing, say, young white Christian women. That would have fired up America a lot more back in 1979, 1980. Probably would fire up America more now. Uh, also, last thing before uh, the timeline, just like how with the Grim Sleeper killings, having a lot of killers loose in the same area, killing the same type of victim in the, you know, uh, made it harder for police to catch Lonnie Franklin. There were a few other dangerous, prolific, prolific 
predators hunting the same type of victim in the same area as William Bonham. Between December of 1972 and June of 1980, authorities in seven counties across Southern California recorded the murders of 44 young men and boys, and many additional young men and boys had vanished. Some of their bodies would turn up later. Most of the victims were homosexual. Their deaths made the police believe the killer was either gay or hated gay men. Most of the victims were strangled. Some were stabbed with knives or ice picks, all brutally uh, you know, tortured before they died. Initially, all of these murders were attributed to the freeway killer. Later, authorities would find out that this killer was actually three men. William Bonin, Patrick Carney, also known as the trash bag killer, and Randy Kraft, uh, I think the, the, the most violent of the bunch, also known as the scorecard killer. One of these killers was caught two years before Bonin's crime spree began, but bodies of that killer's suspected victims were still missing when Bonin was active. Uh, let's briefly get acquainted with Southern California's other freeway killers, Patrick and Handy Randy, before we really get in, uh, get in and get to know Bonin. So just a bit of info on these other two guys. We'll, we'll probably suck each of these dudes fully down the line. After being captured in 1977, dirtbag Patrick Carney would plead guilty to 21 murders and receive 21 life sentences in the state of California. He only avoided the death penalty because of his guilty plea. Uh, he is suspected strongly of killing as many as 43 victims, according to law enforcement, all boys and young men. His oldest victim, 28 years old. His youngest, fucking five years old. Jesus Christ, another straight up monster. Born in East LA in September of 1939. He was raised in East LA as well. After moving to Texas briefly as a young man, Carney moved back to Southern California, got a good job in the aerospace industry working as an engineer for the Hughes Aircraft Company. He's, uh, he gets away with killing for 15 years, partially because he was literally a genius. He had a 180 IQ, smarter than Ed Mother Kemper even. Uh, a gay man like Bonin, he was sexually driven to commit his crimes against other men. Uh, he murdered first in 1962, picking up a 19-year-old hitchhiker in Indio, 125 miles east of uh, Downey, California, out by Joshua Tree. Picked him up on his motorcycle, drove him to a secluded spot, shot him in the head with his pistol, had sex with his corpse. Then not long afterwards, he picked up his, uh, this guy's cousin, took him out to a secluded area, killed him as well, and had sex with his dead body. The poor family of these two related hitchhikers. For the next five years, Carney would live in Culver City with his lover, David Hill, and not apparently murder anyone. He killed next in Tijuana, same thing, shot to the head, then sex. Not long afterwards, Hill would uh, uh, leave Carney, and uh, he didn't handle the breakup well, but he started killing much more frequently. A slight man, only five foot, uh, five inches tall, he would shoot almost all of his victims, then have sex with them. In that way, he was less cruel than the other two freeway killers. He targeted hitchhikers, prostitutes, many met at bars, and occasionally children. Then after his first few kills, uh, he began methodically disposing of his victims' remains. He would cut them into pieces with a hacksaw before throwing their dismembered parts into a trash bag. And then he dumped the trash bag somewhere in Southern California, typically near a freeway. That's how he got the trash bag killer, uh, you know, moniker as well. Finding the identity of one of these dismembered victims, John LeMay would lead police back to Carney in 1977. Police visiting Carney's house were then able to gather hair samples that they linked to the trash bags that LeMay's body was dumped in. After his arrest, he actually confessed to 35 murders, charged with 21 because of evidence problems with the other 14. A psychiatrist who interviewed Carney after his arrest Determined he had that IQ of, you know, 180, well above what's considered genius. To put that number in perspective, Dr. Uh, Manahel Tabit, an economist widely recognized as one of the smartest people currently alive, listed as among the 30 smartest people on earth by uh, superscholar.org, uh, she has an IQ of 168. Most articles 
that I've read speculate that Einstein's IQ was somewhere around 160. This piece of shit had 180. Could have done so much good for the world with that big brain of his. Instead, he used, uh, used it primarily to get away with killing and fucking innocent boys and men for years. He's 81 now, still alive, incarcerated at Mule Creek State Prison, not very far outside of Sacramento, using that big brain to do fuck all other than wonder, you know, how he got caught and ended up sitting in a prison cell, I guess. Uh, and then there's the, the most evil, Randy Kraft, born in Long Beach in 1945, moved to Midway City in Orange County when he was three, graduated high school there, then go to nearby Claremont College in Claremont, California, uh, the school recent suck subject Robin Williams attended for a year. Randy was, of course, another freeway killer, also called the scorecard killer. On May 12th, 1989 in Orange County, Kraft was found guilty of 16 counts of murder, all young men, one count of sodomy, and one count of emasculation. That means he cut some dude's genitals off. His defense attorneys tried to blame William Bonin and Patrick Carney, the other freeway killers, for his heinous crimes. Many in law enforcement think that between 1972 and 83, Kraft likely killed 67 boys and men. At least 67. Holy shit. At the time of his arrest, investigators found over 70 pictures of young men, most of uh, whom looked unconscious or dead, tucked under the floor mat of his car under the bare feet of his final victim. Another gay man whose crimes against uh, other men were sexually motivated. Kraft typically lured young men, often hitchhikers. His confirmed victims ranged in age from 17 to 25 into his uh, car with the offer of a ride or the promise of drugs and or alcohol. Once his victim was drunk or high, they'd get tied up, be brutally sexually tortured, then killed in a number of different ways. Usually they were strangled or asphyxiated in some other way. Uh, sometimes they were also bludgeoned. At least one victim was stabbed to death and some were forced to ingest toxic chemicals. Before being killed, these poor victims were usually burned. Jesus Christ, typically in the face and their genitals, uh, severely beaten, raped foreign objects like fucking tree branches, crudely shoved into their asses. Ballpoint pen was shoved into one victim's penis, sexually mutilated. He did shit like savagely biting their genitals or trying to bite them off, sometimes removing their genitals while they were still alive. This motherfucker was brutal. Butcher of Kansas City vibes with this piece of shit. They were often posed while scared and nude before they died, sometimes after a while unconscious, into various pornographic positions, had their pictures taken, and then many of those pictures were found later in Kraft's car. Dude loved a trophy. Most of Kraft's victims were picked up in Southern California. Also found in his car was a scorecard, a coded list of 61 neatly printed terms and phrases found in a briefcase in the trunk of his car. Each name believed to refer to a victim. Many of their bodies never been found, Many entries uh, appear innocuous, but each believed to refer to a specific murder victim or sometimes even to a double murder. Several entries clearly reference victims' names. For example, the entry reading EDM refers to the initials of victim Edward Daniel Moore. Uh, Vince M refers to known victim Vince, uh, Vincent Mestis. The defense tried to blame the computer pro programmers' crimes on abnormalities found in the frontal lobe of his brain, uh, abnormalities that reduced his ability to control both his emotions and impulses. Prosecution rebuffed this testimony by stating to the jury, there is nothing wrong with Mr. Kraft's mind other than that he likes killing for sexual satisfaction. Adding that the fact uh, that his friends and family had found it difficult to believe he had committed any of these murders simply showed, quote, what a good salesman he is. He was sentenced to death in 1989. Thanks to California's moratorium on executions, the 76-year-old remains on death row, right, still alive today, incarcerated in San Quentin State Prison, just north of San Francisco, same prison where Bonin will be killed in 1996. Uh, they met each other. They were friends. 
at this prison during Bonin's final days. In San Quentin, death row inmates able to congregate for a limited amount of time each day, talk, play games, whatever, in the in the yard, out, outdoor exercise area. Bonin and Kraft for years used to play fucking bridge all the time. Unreal. Maybe, maybe they joked about all the shit they used to do to their victims. Yeek! Would not want to be a fly on the wall for that conversation. All right. Now that we know a little bit about uh, two of the three horrific high, uh, you know, freeway killers, let's really get to know the third in today's Time Suck timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a Time Suck timeline. On January 8th, 1947, William George Bonin, born in Willimantic, Connecticut. Willimantic is a census-designated place, but a kind of a larger one. Located in Wyndham, Connecticut, former city and borough, now currently one of two tax districts in Wyndham. Uh, home to Eastern Connecticut uh, State University and the Wyndham Textile and History Museum. I have been to that museum three times over the years. Uh, a couple of years ago, I flew the kids out to Willimantic to check it out. I uh, highly recommend uh, the, the crown jewel of this place is the Brooke Shannon Antique Sewing Machine Room. A bunch of replica, really cool sewing machines from the 19th century factories in the area. Yeah, you can listen to this uh, awesome two-hour audio presentation on thread counts. Like, like what exactly does a higher thread count, you know, uh, mean as far as how it makes a softer sheet? You know, just a lot of really cool info, uh, I think. Uh, maybe not. I've, I've never been there. I would rather punch myself in the nuts uh, than spend two hours in a textile museum. I'm guessing that museum on a, on a good year. Gets about a thousand people total. Now, I'm guessing I'd have fun talking to maybe one or two of those people. G- good for you if you have a history boner for textiles. But for me, God, come on, get the fuck out of here. As of 2010, Willimantic had a population of 17,737 people, about 13,000 when Billy Bad Boy was born there. Willimantic is known for textiles, known as Thread City in the mid and late 19th century for all the American thread company mills along the river. It's a major center of the American textile industry in the 1800s. After World War II, the mill closed down. Industry died out. The town was uh, reabsorbed into Wyndham in the 1980s. Almost no one in the world outside of those living there at the time cared even a little bit. They do, for real, have a very cool annual tradition, though. The Boombox Parade. Yes! Nice! Willimantic holds a Boombox Parade every 4th of July, where instead of marching uh, a marching band performing, residents bring boomboxes <laughs> tuned to uh, WILI, a local AM radio station, the tradition started back in 1986 when no marching band was ava- was available for a parade. Fucking love it. I hope that radio station plays Peter Gabriel's In Your Eyes. In your eyes, the light, the heat. Uh, you know, from the Say Anything soundtrack, John Cusack. I hope they play that every fucking year. If not, they need to wise up and start. Best boombox pop culture reference. Uh, Bill was born a middle child, one of three boys born to perennial Parent of the Year nominees. Alice, Dorothy, Coate, Bonin, Benton. Way too many names for this dirtbag of a mom. And Robert Leonard Bonin, dirtbag dad. Robert was 28 when William was born. He'd live until 1980. Alice, 26. She would live until 19, or 2004. Uh, she would outlive her son, Billy Bad Boy, by eight years. And I don't think she was real heartbroken when he died. And not just because he was such a piece of shit. She's not too good herself. Uh, William's brothers were Robert and Paul Bonin. Bobby, Billy, Polly B., these poor, uh, poor kids, their childhood, not good. Uh, Bill and his bros were raised by his uh, not good parents and also his much worse maternal grandfather at various points of his childhood. Neither parent ever seemed able to uh, hold a steady job, according to a few sources. I love how this is written. <laughs> Both played bingo <laughs> to make extra cash. Holy shit. Bingo. 
Uh, that's what I mentioned earlier, right? If you're, if you're playing bingo for fun, all right, whatever, who cares? Good for you. Go, go fill out those bingo cards, right? Best of luck, have fun. If you're playing bingo to make extra cash, your life is a fucking train wreck. And that train before it wrecked was hauling nothing but burning dumpsters. <laughs> the, the sources talk more about her mom being really into bingo. Her, her side hustle was bingo. <laughs> was she really doing that for extra money? Or was she just avoiding being a responsible adult and blowing what money she was making on bingo? That's just so sad. That's like the saddest form of a gambling addiction, which, uh, you know, his dad was called a gambling addict and referenced, you know, with bingo. If you're, you're going to blow through your gambling money, please blow it on craps. Blow it on blackjack, poker, something kind of respectable, not bingo. Imagine the, the commercial for a law firm catering to bingo addicts. <laughs> or, or, you know, just listen to how I imagine it. Are you or someone you know addicted to bingo? Are you spending your children's lunch money on custom divers? 30-ball speed bingo? Bonus blackout games? Call the law office of Parker, Milton, and Bradley, Connecticut's number one bingo gambling addiction law firm. We'll find a way to blame the bingo parlor. And Myrtle. Ha! You know that bitch is fixing the ball somehow. Her friend Gertrude can't be that lucky. Game after game. Come on! When I say call we, I mean call me. I'm James Parker Milton Bradley. I'll probably answer the phone. Business has been real slow because, you know, I've chosen to chase uh, bingo gambling money. You know, or something weird and sad like that. Uh, William's father, Robert, was a veteran who shortly after he returned from World War II became an alcoholic, you know, with a, with a bingo, with a bingo gambling addiction. <laughs> just two bingo junkies. Always complaining about the balls, just never treating them right. Bobby Sr. sounds like a real piece of work. Bond and Home was run by a violent alcoholic father who gambled so much that he once lost the family home. It doesn't say that he lost the family home on a bingo game, but God, I hope he did. Bobbert was also an angry drunk known around town for beating his wife and children. Really, really putting together quite the uh, picture of this family now. Three little boys being raised by a father known around town primarily for being a drunken bingo fucking gambling addict. And, you know, wife and child abuser, you know, raised by a bingo obsessed mom. What is happening? Some of Billy's grade school teachers will later describe him as a troubled student and that his negative behavior in class definitely influenced by his home life. Uh, did I mention that Bobby Sr. also a pedophile? Growing up, Bill was physically, psychologically, and sexually abused by his father and also his grandfather. The abuse so severe that it left scars all over his body and caused brain damage. Where was his mom during all this trying to protect her kids? No, it doesn't, doesn't seem so. Alice is described in sources as a neglectful mother. I think that's about the nicest thing people could say about her. She claimed to love her children very much. Well, of course she did. Very easy to say you love your kids and pat yourself on the back for being a, being a good mom or a good dad and having your heart in the right place. I love my kids. All right, it's fucking easy. Who gives a shit? I mean, it's better than nothing, but it's not that great. Way harder to put in the work necessary to be a decent parent. Way harder to, to grab your kids, you know, and flee and risk everything to protect them from being physically and sexually abused. Uh, when she left her kids alone with Robert, he often abused them. And then when Robert didn't want the kids around, she'd send them to her dad's house, even though she knew her dad was a sexual predator. Alice knew because growing up, she had been sexually abused by her father. Fuck. She still sent her boys to go stay unsupervised with Papa bad touches and secrets. A man described by others in the neighborhood as, quote, a well-known pedophile. Not just described as creepy. Not just described as a pedophile, even. Described as a well-known pedophile. Years later, after her son's arrest, Alice even admitted to a psychiatrist that she suspected her dad was molesting Bill uh, when he went to stay with him because he had also molested her as a kid. That is, that is straight up some Steph Cox Curvy fodder. If your mother knew her daddy was a pedo, 
and she had him babysit you, figuring you'd get diddled, you might be a killer. Sweet Jesus. To further paint this portrait of anything but a Norman Rockwell-type childhood, uh, the Bonin boys were remembered by locals later as always being hungry, dirty, and never having proper clothes. Apparently, Bobby Sr. often blew their grocery and clothes money on gambling. Always at the fucking bingo halls. Fucking Myrtle! She's screwing me, Alice! She's screwing me! Of course, Gertrude won again. Who else? Three bingos in a row today? I'd have killed them both. Uh, neighbors would later tell reporters they occasionally stepped in and gave the hungry, dirty Bonin boys clothes and food when they could. What a childhood. Uh, as I've said many times before, it's not like you can make a serial killer. Plenty of kids raised in homes like Billy Bonin, you know, raised to never go on and kill. I mean, his other two brothers didn't go on to kill that we know of. But holy shit, his parents sure seemed to have nudged him in that direction, didn't they? If he was born with the nature of violence, that tilted towards a lack of empathy for others, which many think he was, his parents certainly then pushed him a long ways towards a serial killing future he may never have had had he grown up in a better home environment. I would say he likely would not have become the monster he became if his parents, and at least one grandparent, just weren't such pieces of shit. Reminds me of Fred and Rose West's terrible childhoods. Uh, 1955, Alice Benton kicks little eight-year-old Billy out of the family home for unknown reasons. I'd say one of those reasons is that she was a walking toilet of a human being. Won't stand up to her husband or father, won't try and go get help, but she will toss out an abused eight-year-old boy. Bill was picked up by the state, put in a boy's home. Some sources say that all three Bonin boys were sent to this home. That's the account I believe most. Uh, you know, once on the radar of local services, someone was like, what the fuck are those bingo dipshits doing there? You gotta, you gotta fix some stuff, right? Come on, you guys, before you before you get the kids back, you gotta, fi you gotta fix everything. Listen, people, stop everything you're doing now and just try to become completely different people who don't totally suck. Uh, years later, Bill would say he had little to no memories of his time at this boy's home. Maybe he just didn't want to talk about it. Other children who lived at the same time at this home will report that the uh, employees punished them often and harshly. Boys beaten for small offenses like spilling their drink or talking out of turn. Staff would allegedly shove their heads into sinks, basically waterboard them, or they'd be forced to walk up and down stairs until their legs would give out. Flashbacks here of the Elon school. You know that episode? Bill's parents regained custody of him the uh, following year at the age of nine. I'm sure he was thrilled to be placed back in the care of Daddy Bingo Diddler and Papa, these people make me want to fucking throw up. Uh, he didn't stay home long. 1957, at the age of 10, he went to juvie for stealing some license plates. I'd love to tell you that his life at juvie was at least better than his life at home or in that boy's home, but tragically, uh, seems to have been worse. During his time in juvie, Bill will later tell a prison psychi a psychiatrist that he was physically and sexually abused by other usually older boys. Said he was, you know, tied up, raped, forcibly submerged underwater, threatened at knife point. Said he was talked into, seven, uh, into having some kind of consensual sex at age 10 by an older boy. Uh, as much uh, consent as a continually sexually abused 10-year-old can give, he agreed, but apparently asked to be restrained, asked to be tied up while it happened. Wanted to be tied up, All right? He, he said this happened when he was 10. He said the restraints would make him feel more secure and less afraid. Dr. Jonathan Pincus, a neurologist who will examine him after his murder arrest, said that his knowledge of sex and his request for restraints at that age indicated that it is inconceivable he was not sexually abused and forcibly restrained by adult abusers before. You know, kind of a clunky way of saying that, you know, some adult or multiple adults had certainly tied him up and sexually abused him before. Bill later said that his experiences of being tied up and sodomized as a kid were how he learned to tie up his own victims later. Bill also said that his adult juvie advisor physically and sexually abused him while incarcerated there. Uh, that claim is unverified. If true, just what the fuck? How are there so many predators out there? Bill said he returned from that boy's home a young pedophile. 
When he returned, he began molesting his younger brother, Paul, and other kids in the neighborhood. Uh, did not get caught. No one intervened. Of course, no one intervened to help little Polly B. I mean, if his mom, you know, dad weren't going to make sure that, uh, you know, he wasn't being molested at home. I mean, his dad was molesting him at home. Why is mom going to step in and make sure uh, one of her boys isn't molesting, you know, another boy? Too bad no one had locked his parents and granddad into the, in the family home while no one else was around years earlier and just fucking burned it to the ground. Uh, the shift Billy Bonin underwent from victim to abuser is sadly somewhat common amongst pedophiles. Boys who are victims of childhood sexual abuse more likely to become predators. The cycle of abuse becoming an abuser has been incorrectly, in my opinion, labeled as a myth by many very left-leaning academic magazines who go on to say that this myth re-victimizes victims by labeling them as some kind of sexual predator ticking time bomb. But it's, it's not a myth. Most victims of sexual abuse do not become sexual abusers. That's important to state. Most do not. That's true. That would be a myth to believe that if you get sexually abused, you're probably going to become an abuser. Not true. Important to point that out. However, a much larger percentage of men who were sexually abused as kids do become sexual abusers as adults when compared to a non-abused general population in study after study. Women, interestingly, do not seem to perpetuate the cycle of abuse the same way. Another reason it's just so important to stop sexual predators. Fucking, you know, stop letting them out with easy sentences. Uh, predators who statistically are overwhelmingly male. The cycle in men statistically does create more sexual predators. A study published in the December 2001 issue of the British Journal of Psychiatry stated that there is a widespread belief in a cycle of child sexual abuse, but little empirical evidence for this belief. But then this exact same study of 747 men states that the overall rate of having been a victim was 35% for male perpetrators compared to 11% for non-perpetrators. Statistically, in this study that set out to disprove this cycle, Men who had been sexually abused as children over three times more likely to sexually abuse children themselves when they became adults. Three times as likely. That's statistically unbelievably significant. Uh, alarming. Another published 1996 study found that approximately 40% of male adolescent sexual offenders had themselves been sexually abused, uh, much higher than the rate of approximately 15% reported in the general community. Again, roughly three times more likely to sexually abuse when abused. And there's many more studies. Uh, again, though, important to point out that the majority well, victims do not go on to victimize others. But there is, you know, a connection. Why does this cycle happen? Why does the correlation between sexually uh, being sexually victimized and becoming a victimizer exist at all? The answer may lie, strangely, in the game of bingo. Did you know that 78% of people who've played bingo more than 10 times in their life have a 90% chance of being a sexual predator? The link is so strong that in some countries, like, uh, like New Zealand, for example, bingo is slang for butt rape. So be careful over there when you talk about bingo. Telling someone, I want to go play some bingo. That could literally get you beat up or arrested. And that's, and that's you know, that's not true. Uh, the answer has nothing to do with bingo. And bingo is not slang for butt rape. But now, the next time you hear somebody say bingo, there is a decent chance you're going to think about butt rape. So, I don't know. Sorry about that, I guess. But seriously, why does this cycle happen? Why does the correlation between sexually uh, being sexually victimized and becoming a victimizer exist at all? Uh, there's, there's a lot of opinions out there. Therapist Maureen Canning with a master's of marriage and family therapy, herself a child abuse survivor, recovered sex addict, relationship therapist. She theorized why in her 2007 book, Lust, Anger, Love, Understanding Sexual Addiction and the Road to Healthy Intimacy. She says that first off, simply the abuse feels familiar. If a connection between abuse and love is made early in life, the feelings of shame and anger, which naturally happen as a consequence of that abuse, can become mixed up with sexual feelings, leading to sexual confusion in the person who experienced the abuse. 
These feelings may become interpreted as feelings of love and even passion that then can lead, terrifyingly, to sexual arousal. The experience of the sexual abuse has obviously sexualized the victim, and then later as an adult, especially if they never get proper therapy, the formerly abused child might now be sexually aroused by thoughts of acting out a similar type of abuse that they experienced. That seems to be true in Billy Bonin's case. Uh, abusing others can also be a fucked up attempt at healing, uh, at, quote, taking the power back. Dark, but I do understand the psychological motivation there, right? As the abused, you feel powerless. Who likes to view themselves as powerless? Uh, much more appealing to view oneself as being powerful. Abusing others is a way of doing that. Fucking terrible, horrible way, but still a way. Uh, abusing others can also be viewed by some as a way of erasing one's own abuse, kind of evening the scale somehow. I think this also seems to be true in Billy Bonin's case. On a similar but simpler level, level uh, people who have been abused may just carry around a lot of anger about what happened to them, and abusing someone else can be a powerful way of expressing that anger. Again, feels right with uh, you know who Billy will become and what he'll do. So back to the timeline now. Uh, around 1960, when Billy's in the eighth grade, his family's house is foreclosed on. Uh, crazy with how responsible these people were that they would get their house foreclosed on. Uh, then after they lose their house, his family moves to Downey, California, right? The conservative California, lots of jobs, diners, tacos, heaven, leave it to Beaver-esque California town. Uh, I went over earlier. The Bonin family thinks moving to California will change their lives for the better. Eh, yeah, well, in Bill's case, maybe they thought there were more lucrative bingo halls out in LA. Maybe some type of underground bingo ring where they could be very sad versions of professional poker players. <laughs> bingo halls full of professional bingo hustlers. You know, Woody Harrelson, Randy Quaid, Bill Murray, Kingpin vibes but in a bingo hall setting. Holy shit, that, has a movie. that is a movie I would watch over and over. A kingpin type movie about bingo hustlers. Uh, in California, Bill and his brothers and Alice live in a house on, uh, uh, you know, and dad, uh, Angel Street in Downey. Bob Bonin's now in poor health due to liver failure. He's in and out of the veterans hospital. Man, poor guy. Probably so much harder for him now to molest his kids and throw away the family's money on booze and bingo. As a teen, uh, Bill gets in trouble for theft, petty crimes, but nothing major at first. The one thing that may have kept him from, you know, more quickly tumbling into a life of crime was uh, so random. And speaking of Kingpin a moment ago, bowling. His main passion as a teen was bowling. Did not see that coming when I first came across it. Teenage Billy spent as much time he could uh, as he could at the local bowling alley. And he got pretty good. I wish I knew his average score. Could not find that. I'm guessing it had to have been over 200. Pro bowlers averaged somewhere between 230 and 300. Sounds like he was just under that because he did play in a bowling league and started to compete in amateur bowling tournaments. Bowling sources say it was a healthy way for him to release his emotions and it gave him, uh, you know, feelings of uh, accomplishments, you know, success, something he really hadn't experienced before. For quite a while, his dream was to become a pro bowler. Unfortunately, bowling wasn't quite enough to turn his life around and keep him from becoming a monster. Holy shit. What if, what if he was just one 300 game away from not being a vicious killer? What, what if a 250 league average would have just completely turned his life around? Like if he would have just thrown a few more strikes Instead of some, you know, the occasional gutter ball, I'd be talking about someone else this week. He'd be living in Reno or wherever professional bowlers live, signing autographs at High Sierra Lanes or the Kingpin Club or somewhere. I doubt that would have magically erased the horrors of his childhood, but, you know, fun for me to imagine. Uh, 1965, at the age of 18, Billy Gutterballs joins the U.S. Air Force. He also gets engaged to Susan, a girl he knew from high school before he left. Uh, Bill later said his mom, Alice, pressured him into proposing to Susan as a good bingo hustler mommy does to her gay 18-year-old son. And she did already know he was gay. Alice was apparently hopeful that marrying a woman would just, you know, make homosexuality go away. 
She just keeps sounding more and more awesome. She did not like that Bill was gay. Uh, she also later thought that the sexual abuse he suffered turned him gay, which, you know, it doesn't work that way. Uh, she said she always rejected that part of him. Part of him being her words. Uh, I don't think love works that way. When you reject the core part of someone, you basically reject all of them, don't you? To be a little fair to Alice, right, in the 1960s, as I pointed out earlier, most people in America just did not understand homosexuality on any level. They didn't, they didn't you know, seem to care that, uh, you know, that it was biological. Well, they, they didn't know, to be fair. They, they, the studies hadn't been done yet. Uh, not, not as many of them as have been done now to show that, you know, you're, you're born that way. After joining the Air Force and going to basic training, Bill then spends a five-month tour in Vietnam. He serves in the 205th Assault Support Helicopter Unit, and he sees a lot of combat. He logged 700 hours of combat, largely spent on patrols operating a machine gun. He later claimed to have killed an enemy during his service. He also may have sexually assaulted two of his subordinates at gunpoint. These assaults don't show up on his official record, but they will come out in his trial. That's when the uh, alleged incidents are made public. Uh, the prosecutor said the closest the defendant got to combat in Vietnam was when he held a gun to two soldiers' heads and sodomized them. Uh, I don't know why he's trying to act like he didn't see other combat. Uh, sources, unfortunately, don't explicitly say how the prosecutor knew about those details. I believe one source insinuates this, that he spoke about them to one or more of his accomplices slash henchmen, who after their arrest, you know, turn on him in the hopes of getting lighter sentences and, you know, tell all they have to tell. Uh, on paper and on his uh, official service record, it seems that Bonham was a good soldier, a great one, actually. In 1968, he's honorably discharged from the Air Force with the Good Conduct Medal for saving a fellow airman. He actually ran into enemy fire to rescue another soldier. Yes, even some of the worst of us do seem to have some good in us, in moments at least. Despite this moment of heroism, uh, the war did not help lighten up Bill's dark nature. Did not make him a better person, made him darker. Bill said later that his time in Vietnam led him to the conclusion that, quote, human life was overvalued. That people didn't matter nearly as much as they thought they did. The experience of killing there, according to Bonham, made it a lot easier to cross that line when he came back. And maybe it did. Uh, when Bill returned home, he lived with uh, support of Mommy Incredible, the family home on Angel Street in Downey, California. Uh, you know, now she's pressuring him to get married. Maybe that'll make him not gay. She's back to that. Shortly after returning to Downey in 1968, 21-year-old Billy marries uh, his poor fiance Susan. They don't stay married for long, and they never have kids, probably mostly because Billy, not a big fan of vagina or boobs or woman butt, and they divorced soon after marrying. Their marriage had problems, obviously, right from the start. Uh, then Susan later said she was given a little extra motivation to leave Billy after he told her about a disturbing recurring dream he kept having. She said, he told me he had the dream a lot of times. He would be in a bar alone and he would walk up to a girl who had no face. He would buy her a drink and take her to a deserted place. There, he'd rape her, kill her, bury her in a shallow grave. And then he would wake up crying from that dream. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah, that'd probably be a lot for a young bride to handle. A little concerning for any partner. Uh, like my wife, Lindsay, I, you know, I believe that my wife, Lindsay really does truly love me. But if I kept waking up crying, <laughs> I finally told her that, you know, uh, I was like having a dream where, you know, I'd see a Polish woman in a bar and I'd buy her some drinks and I'd take her out in the woods. And I'd rape her and kill her and I'd bury her body. I wonder how long she would stick around. I wonder how long she would stick around if I also would then tell her that we needed to go camping soon after waking up from those dreams, right? Like I, you know, tell her that and I stopped crying. I'm like, man, I really want to go camping now. Just you and me, right? Don't tell anybody. Uh, November 17th, 1968, Bill Bonin charged with kidnapping, raping an unnamed child. Crime is listed on a few legal sites as a prior conviction, but no details are listed. No sentencing information either. No details given in the uh, two most read books on him. 
Not sure if he served any time for these crimes based on the way his bio reads in several sources. I'm going to say he did not serve any time for this incredibly serious offense. No idea how he got away with that. Maybe the judge, you know, he went before, had just joined a bowling league. And Bill, you know, offered him some lessons in exchange for uh, no jail time. Uh, 1969, at the age of 22, Bill's arrested again, this time for sexually assaulting four different young boys. Age is not listed in sources other than they were minors. Uh, individual dates not listed. He picked them up, uh, apparently, while driving his car, offered them rides. Unfortunately, they got in. Then he'd handcuff them, raped them both orally and anally, tied them up with a nylon cord, just like he'd been tied up as a kid, sexually tortured them like he was tortured. Remember him having all those scars and some brain damage from childhood abuse? Did weird shit to them, like grab and squeeze their testicles real hard. When he was arrested, he was actually found with another 16-year-old boy whom he was sexually torturing, caught in the act, told the arresting officers they were lucky to have caught him because he was planning on killing that boy. He was convicted in court and then deemed a mentally disordered sex offender. He was sent to a a Tascadero State Hospital after being diagnosed with manic depressive disorder, aka bipolar disorder and sociopathy. That hospital less than a 20-minute drive from San Luis Obispo in California. Uh, Another future infamous serial killer also at the Tascadero State Hospital at that exact same time, almost the same age too, 19-year-old Ed Kemper. Mother, you make me so mad, mother. I want to put cats' heads on sticks. Why must must I be in a hospital with a pedo bowler, mother? Crazy. Bonham was almost two years older than Kemper. Their stays at uh, Atascadero uh, would overlap by about six months. Not sure if they ever interacted. If they did, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to assume that interaction was not one where Bonham assaulted the six foot nine inch Kemper who already weighed about 250 pounds. Bonham's height, weight, never mentioned, but based on footage of him at his trials, unless everyone else at the trials were giants, he seemed slightly below average in size. Maybe like five, eight, five, nine, no more than 160, 170 pounds. I, th- I think Kemper would have broken his fucking head off and then fucked his windpipe. Just like he literally did with mother if uh, Billy Bad Boy would have tried to get rowdy with him. Several neurologists will examine Bill during his stay. Doctors suspect he has uh, repressed uh, much of his childhood abuse. The memories of his abuse, one doctor wrote, there's much data to indicate that Bonham was severely and recurrently sexually abused as a child. Here they find out that uh, Billy Bad Boy, you know, kind of a smart guy too. Too bad he didn't grow up in a different home. They estimated his IQ was 121, which is higher than average. Uh, no Kemper IQ of uh, 145. No scorecard killer IQ of uh, fucking 180. But, you know, smart. Above the average level of 85 to 114, just below the moderately gifted range of 130 to 144. Uh, neurologists also find that, you know, he has brain damage to his frontal lobe, the area that helps restrain violent impulses. They find scars on his head, backside. He can't explain where a lot of them came from. Doctors speculate they came from incidents of extreme childhood abuse. Maybe he did remember, just didn't want to talk about him. Uh, we talked about the correlation between frontal lobe injuries and serial killers numerous times and serial killer sucks, right? Damn. Severe and prolonged childhood physical and sexual abuse dished out from a number of assailants, many family members over many years of his childhood and serious frontal lobe damage and saw heavy action in Vietnam, learned how to kill after uh, all that. It would have been remarkable if this dude did not become a sexually motivated serial killer. 1971, Bill discharged from Atascadero State, sent to a prison after he is uh, deemed unable to be, uh, you know, basically like he won't respond to treatments. They say he's unable to respond to any treatments. They just flat out gave up on being able to treat him. They didn't even do that with Ed Kemper. Bonin, I guess, just not as good at hiding his predatory nature. Uh, He certainly will not try to hide it after he uh, later gets arrested for multiple murders. Uh, In May of 1974, at the age of 28, Bill released from prison. Prison officials wrote that they found him no longer dangerous now. 
All right, three years after a psychiatrist, they're like, we can't fucking do anything with this sociopath. They're like, nah, now he's good. Once he was in prison for multiple murders, uh, I watched former officers who spent time with him, uh, you know, uh, during his trial and afterwards, and like when he was on like death row, talk about how easy he was to talk to. How if he didn't know what he had done, you'd think he was a, a good guy, a great guy, cool guy, very likable, right? Billy Gutterballs figured out how to charm the officials, just like he'd soon charm a, a lot of hitchhikers into getting his murder van, into getting into his murder van, excuse me. Once released, uh, he may not have been too dangerous for around a year or just never got caught, never confessed to whatever horrible shit he was doing in the second half of 1974 and for most of 1975. By August of 1975, uh, Bill Bonin definitely back at it. That month, he rapes attempts to strangle 14-year-old David McVicker. I watched a doc this poor dude was prominently featured in. It was the last day of summer break for young David. The last day of summer vacation. Shit. He's hitchhiking to Huntington Beach where he and his friends are going to surf, swim, finish their summer off right, going to enjoy being teenagers in sunny Southern California. Then Bill pulls up next to him, offers him a ride to the beach. David later told the LA Times he was totally cool. There was nothing in the least bit strange about him. Apparently for the first five minutes of the drive, Bill seemed like a good, normal dude. And then out of nowhere, he asked David if he'd ever committed any homosexual acts. David said he had not, and he is super creeped out now. Yeah, he then tries to quietly open the door and jump out as the car slows down at an intersection, but then Bill pulls out a gun, points it at his head, and then drives him to a remote area where he holds him down, ties him up, and rapes him. Uh, David said Bill used David's own t-shirt to choke him, used a, used a tie iron, twist the t-shirt, you know, wrap it tighter and tighter around David's neck. He thought he was going to die. Uh, as he feels like he's about to lose consciousness, he said he whispered, please God help. And when he did that, Bill stopped choking him and then even apologized for doing it. His conscience just kind of flickered back in for a moment. Then right before he drove away and left, David, Bill told him, we'll meet again. And they would meet again years later, but not how Billy Gutterballs imagined it. Uh, poor David suffered greatly after the rape. He struggled with feelings of being dirty, feelings of uh, shame, like it was his fault somehow. He couldn't initially talk to his mom about it, didn't feel like he could, so he confided to his best friend. Then, you know, that kid unfortunately told other kids, uh, got around school, Started to bully him at school, make jokes about him being raped, jokes about how he was gay and how he wanted it. Uh, he wasn't gay, isn't gay. I, I told you things not so progressive in California in the 60s in various ways. David eventually quit school over all this because he got really depressed uh, and apparently st still suffers from vivid nightmares all these years later. At one point, David began to live off of disability checks because he couldn't mentally function well enough to keep a job. Luckily, not long after word got out around school, his mom did find out, went to the police, uh, because Billy had given David his name, the police were able to quickly find him and they charged him with raping young David. Then on September 8th, 1975, now 28, still 28-year-old Bill Bonin sentenced to 15 years in prison. The police promised David that Bill was going to get at least 15 years, 15 years to life. But the justice system, you know, would let him down. In October of 1978, the age of only 31, Bill Bonin released from prison after serving just three years and allowed once again, right, this uh, twice convicted uh, as an adult of sexual, you know, predatory crimes. is now Roman South, Southern California streets again. The known repeat offender pedophile uh, goes to go live with mommy Alice again. Bill and his brother, Paul, uh, who had been working as a plumber, this is the brother he molested growing up, now briefly work together and run the Alpine Inn, a neighborhood bar in the rural Silverado area of Orange County, up in the Santa Ana Mountains, about 40 miles from Downey. Uh, very short-lived business. They, they can't get a uh, permanent liquor license because of Bill's criminal record. After this little short-lived venture, Billy decides to move out of mama's house, move into an apartment about a mile away, still in Downey. Gets a job working for Dependable Driveway, a trucking company based in Montebello, California, which is about five miles north of Downey. 
Uh, starts dating another woman again, trying to trying to make mom happy, trying to deny his sexuality publicly. Around this time, Bill purchases a camo green Ford Econoline camper van as well. He will later name it the Death Van. Not a very creative name, but very apropos. This van is fucking terrifying. This is the van that, like the, this is like the mythical pedo van, right? Uh, the real version. This death van would soon be customized for kidnapping and murder. No windows into the back. Interior handles in the back are removed. The van is fully stocked with knives, ligatures, other torture devices. It's a fucking nightmare on wheels. In his free time, when he's not working at Dependable Driveway or pimping out his murder van, Bill meets neighbor Everett Frazier, living in a nearby apartment, and they become uh, friends, and he becomes a regular visitor at Everett's place. Everett frequently hosted parties. Some of the guests at these parties were openly gay, and for the first time, Bill feels like he can be his true self. Well, you know, mostly his true self. No more fake girlfriends. Bill soon meets uh, future rape and murder accomplices, Vernon Butts, love that name, and Gregory Miley at Everett's house. Uh, generally, Bill tried his best to pretend to be a normal person. Uh, you know, uh, Roger Harrison will later write in his book, The Freeway Killer, the shocking true story of a serial killer, that William Bonin was an average looking man. He wasn't terribly handsome nor hideous. As an adult, he kept a mustache, two sloping black lines down his face, which framed his mouth. He does look like the fucking stereotypical pedophile. Uh, he often kept his hair shoulder length. It looked like everyone else, eh, kind of. Didn't stand out in a crowd. He could blend in. He wouldn't look out of place in line at the bank. Bonin worked a job, lived in an apartment building with many neighbors nearby. Even during the time he was killing, he hosted parties for younger boys in the neighborhood. They liked Bonin. To them, he was cool. He gave them beer. He showed them adult movies. No one wanted to stay away from him. Well, some people wanted to stay away from him. 1979, less than a year after his release, Bonin is arrested again for now, uh, now assaulting a 17-year-old hitchhiker. This is his third Right, uh, you know, pedo should be a conviction, third charge. But then somehow a, a records mix-up allows him to get out of jail before his trial. He never shows up for his court date and they never come looking for him. So that's awesome. True crime author Mark Gribben wrote, freed by a stroke of fate, Bonin now had no intention of ever leaving witnesses to his crimes. Everett Frazier, right, his neighbor, his buddy, picks him up uh, uh, from jail and Bill tells him, no one's going to testify again. This is never gonna happen to me again. Everett would later say he thought that meant like he's just, you know, never going to do these crimes again, but it just meant that uh, he was going to kill his future sexual assault victims. Bill later told Dr. Von DePelto, a prison psychologist, sometimes I'd get tense and think I was going to go crazy if I couldn't get some release, like my head would explode. So I'd go out hunting. Killing helped me. It was like needing to go gambling or getting drunk. I had to, he was addicted to killing. Like how he says, gonna go crazy <laughs> if he didn't do that. I think needing to rape someone and murder someone so you won't go crazy means you're already fucking crazy. Okay, now we're gonna enter the ridiculous year-long murder spree that Bonin went on. Before we get into it, so we don't have to break it up, let's take our sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless, a lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. 
I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. You know what's one of the best things to bring with you wherever you go? Raycon's everyday earbuds. Raycons offer amazing quality audio at half the price of other premium audio brands. Their tens of thousands of five-star reviews speak to that. Your Raycons can go with you everywhere so you can listen at any time. With eight hours of playtime and 32-hour battery life, you don't have to worry about whether they're up for the task. Even though I'm not currently touring, I still travel a fair amount. And I love how small the case is. So easy to throw them in my jacket pocket like I did when Lindsay and I took my grandma to New Orleans. I use them on the plane to help fall asleep to some Nathaniel Ratliff and then Enola, use them at the gym to get pumped up for a quick workout to some Chevelle. Perfect for both places. I was able to easily use noise isolation on the plane to block out flight noises and then switch to awareness mode at the gym so I'm not too lost in my own world and get in the way of others' workouts. Go to buyraycon.com slash timesuck today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash timesuck. Buyraycon.com slash timesuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month, when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to, where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it, though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. 
Thanks for continuing to listen, Meat Sacks. Uh, now we're going to return to the spring of 1979, where Bonin ups his violent ante considerably. May 28th, 1979. I don't know where my dad was. Might not sound like a big deal at first, but also on that day, 13-year-old Thomas Lundgren, abducted by Bill Bonin in Rosetta, a neighborhood in the San Fernando Valley, 35 miles from Downey. His body discarded later that day in Malibu. He'd been strangled. His throat also slashed. He was covered in stab wounds uh, and super fucked up. His genitals were removed. Not sure if they were removed while he was still alive or not. Hopefully removed after he was dead. Bill would later be acquitted of Thomas's murder. So that obviously leaves the possibility that my dad, you know, did do it. Thomas is still listed as a victim of Bonin's. Uh, every source on Bill's murder seemed to think he definitely killed this kid. Just not quite enough evidence for a jury, I guess. Will there be enough evidence someday to prove my dad did? I don't know. Maybe I can't say for sure. Uh, if you're a new listener, my, my dad, the possible serial killer, is a long-running joke here. I would actually feel bad if uh, <laughs> if a lot of you, we've been lucky to have a lot of new listeners like, uh, just get completely taken out of this episode because you can't stop wondering, like, did his fucking dad really do that? His dad fucking, was his dad killing people in the LA area in 1979? I don't think so, but I don't know where he was. I will say that in May of 1979. Also, uh, Bonin not alone when he killed Thomas. He was with his first accomplice and main accomplice, Vernon Butts, all his accomplices, he'd have four, young men between ages 17 and 21. Same age range, basically, as the boys he preferred to target. Vernon Butts, Gregory Miley, William Pugh, and James Monroe. How fucking weird, right? For this dude not to have just one, or even two, but four different evil wizard apprentices. Vernon, 21 years old when he helped Bond and Kill, was described as a low-life drifter with a long criminal record of petty offenses, who was what prosecutors referred to as a guy doing life in prison on the installment plan. Jesus. Also, one of my favorite details I found in this episode, Vernon Butts described in some sources as a part-time magician. Fuck yeah. Uh, Butts also said he went along with Bonham because he was interested in the occult and fascinated by an occult-loving part-time magician apprentice. Are you fucking kidding me? An evil pedo apprentice who's also a part-time magician whose last name is Butts. So, so creepy. What, what kind of a magician would this guy be? Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming to Billy Bonin's Terror Circus Bingo Hall and Magic Show. Are you ready for butts magic? Do you like butts magic? Can you handle some magic butts? Tonight we have the great illusionist, Mr. Magic Butts. Where does he make it all disappear? An evil henchman named Vernon Butts, who's a part-time magician, helping a creepy guy with a mustache who drives a windowless camper van. He actually calls his death van. A dude who wanted to be a professional bowler who was raised by bingo hustlers. What the fuck is happening in this story? Another example of if this was a movie, it could easily feel like the writers were being just too ridiculous and lazy, not making the characters believable. Billy Bowler, Billy Gutterballs, will now begin a murder spree. It will only last around a year, but it will be so bloody. Uh, you know, he, he, he has now begun. Sorry if I didn't say that right. Uh, once he gets a taste for blood, you know, it's, just, it's like he just is never satisfied. He wants more, always more. Psychiatrists later uh, determined that he was uh, most likely in a manic state when he murdered and couldn't control or really just didn't want to control his violent sexual urges. Uh, a quote from a psychiatrist note reads, he described feeling excited by the prospect of killing someone, of being barely able to wait for sundowns so he could begin to cruise to pick up someone for this purpose and obtain some sense of release. I guess interesting to note here that, you know, some serial killers we've covered, you know, like they feel really guilty or at least claim to after uh, some of their kills, especially their early kills. Not this guy at all. Like right out the gate, he fucking loved it. Like admittedly after he gets cop like captured, like loves it. 
August 4th, 1979, Billy Bowling, Billy Gutterballs, Vernon Butts, Magic, uh, Vernon Magic Butts, they abduct and kill 17-year-old Mark Shelton, another victim that will not be among the 14 who'll later be convicted of killing, but everyone feels pretty confident this was his work. Mark taken to Bonin's apartment, raped, tortured, murdered there. Uh, one source says that he died of shock while being raped. A neighbor would later claim they heard screaming, but thought it was just children playing. Who are these fucking neighbors? How do you mistake children playing for like agony screaming? I don't buy it. That feels to me like they're trying to make themselves feel better. Uh, and then he will dump this body, you know, this person's body next to the freeway. The very next night, August 5th, 1979, Billy Gutterballs, Mr. Magic Butts, Accost, Marcus grabs at Newport Beach between 6 and 10 p.m. Marcus was a German student on a backpacking tour of America, made it to L.A. Poor bastard celebrating his 17th birthday. He was traveling alone, but he made a lot of friends along his American journey, but no friends with him this night. Bill and Vernon bind him with a nylon cord, rape him, both of them, both beat him. Bill stabs him 77 times, uh, you know, and he would use a nylon cord, uh, as he always did. Uh, to, to tie him up, stabbed 77 times in front of Vernon, whose sources say cheered him on. Ah, Marks' body found on August 6th on the side of the road in Malibu, uh, you know, orange nylon cord wrapped loosely uh, behind his head and a piece of ignition wire around his ankle. Just three weeks later, August 27th, 1979, Bill kills another victim, 15-year-old Donald Hyden. Donald's parents had uh, been divorced recently. Uh, he started having some trouble at home. He'd been living with his grandparents at the time he went missing. At 1 a.m., Bill and Vernon pick up Donald near the Gay Community Services Center in L.A. They then tie him up with a nylon cord back of Bonin's, you know, murder van, his death van. 11 a.m. later the same day, his naked body found near Liberty Canyon uh, in the off-ramp of the Ventura Freeway. Strangled by a ligature, stabbed, had burn marks, bruising all over his body. He'd been beaten, raped, uh, you know, beaten by both Bonin and Butts. Uh, the autopsy found that attempts were made to cut off his testicles and slit his throat while he was still alive. So much anger. So much hate. Vernon Butts, according to numerous sources, enjoyed helping Bill murder these kids. In a prison interview, he later said he had a hypnotic way about him. Uh-huh. Two weeks later, on September 9th, 1979, Bonin kills another victim, again with Butts in tow. Uh, 17-year-old David Murillo was pedaling away on his bike to go catch a movie in uh, La Mirada at the movie theater when Bill and Vernon kidnap him. They tie him up, you know, nylon cords, drive him to a park, sodomize him, beat him with a tire iron while he begs for his life. And then Bonin strangles him to death. And his naked body is found a few days later on September 12th next to the Ventura Highway off-ramp. His next unconfirmed victim dies two and a half weeks later, September 27th, 18-year-old Robert Wirostek's body found just off the I-10. His body wouldn't actually be identified for 11 months. December 2nd, 1979, Dennis Fox's body is found along the Ortega Highway. There's not much information about the state of his body or method of death, but the police reports indicate that uh, almost all the victims died in the same way, rape and strangulation. There were green carpet fibers on Dennis's body. These fibers would be found on several other victims, would be used as uh, at the trial as damning evidence against Bonham. Dennis's mother last saw him on November 7th. He left to stay with some friends that were having uh, problems at home. She spoke to him on the phone on November 17th and then never heard from him again. Dennis is the first confirmed victim Bill Bonham would murder whose death would only be attributed to Bill. No, no part-time magician, a cold-obsessed henchman cheering him on this time. On January 1st, 1980, it's thought Bonin raped and killed Michael McDonald. Yamo, oh no. Whoa, 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 Yamo, oh no. He really is suspected, suspected, excuse me, of killing Michael McDonald here. Just not that Michael McDonald. Yamo, thank God. 
Oh, 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 Yamo close call. I know that's super fucked up, but what are the odds that the victim actually named Michael McDonald will show up in this Triple M Obsessed podcast? Yamo slim chance. Oh, 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 Yamo who knew? A 16-year-old Michael McDonald, probably abducted, raped, killed by Bonin uh, from Ontario, working solo again. His body found January 3rd. Uh, you know, around this time, some of Bill's neighbors start to get suspicious. They know things aren't quite right at his house. The rumor in the neighborhood is that Bill likes uh, to lure boys into his apartment with the promise of porn and beer. And that rumor is true. Bonin's neighbors think he is a, quote, freak, but they have no idea how really freaky he is. One neighbor's son told her that Bill uh, invited him into his uh, place. Another neighbor reportedly heard more frightful sounds coming from his place, but no one called the police. Doesn't appear that any of his neighbors actually did fucking anything about Bill. Most of the neighbors convinced themselves the screams they heard were just, you know, just, just kids playing. Just some kids playing inside the house. Kids scream a lot. Kids scream for help a lot when they're playing. Mm-hmm. No one ever called the police despite seeing uh, you know, uh, him enter the house with young boys, despite the rumors that he was giving the minors alcohol, showing him porn. Come on, people, snitch. Snitch your fucking hearts out in situations like this. February 3rd, 1980. Where the fuck was my dad? Anchorage, Alaska or the LA area? I asked him. I asked him to send me some pay stubs, receipts, anything. To prove he wasn't in Los Angeles or Orange County, where the freeway killer was roaming. And you know what? Radio silence. Huh. Suspicious. Also on February 3rd, 1980, Bill and a new accomplice, right? Henchman number two, 18-year-old Gregory Miley, kill another victim. Bill also had met Miley at some of that neighbor's parties. Very little is written about Greg. He's uh, simply described as being simple. Simple Greg. In the early morning hours of February 3rd, Bill is driving his van. Simple Greg's riding shotgun. Pick up 15-year-old Charles Miranda in West Hollywood. Drive a few blocks away, park the van. According to uh, Billy Gutterballs, he and Miranda have consensual sex in the back of the van while, uh, or excuse me, before they park here, before they park, they drive around uh, while simple, you know, simple Greg's driving. He's having consensual sex in the back of the van. Then they park and shit goes evil real fast. Uh, You know, Greg parks the van, tries to have sex with Charles, can't get an erection, gets mad, demands money from Charles, robs him now, gets like six bucks, all the kid had at the time. Then Bill and Simple Greg overpower the teen, uh, tie him up inside the van. Greg then rapes Charles with a blunt object. Bill starts saying repeatedly, kid's going to die, kid's going to die, kid's going to die. Allegedly, Greg asks him, why don't you just let him go? Bill refuses because he said that Charles could identify the van later. And then he wrapped Charles' shirt around his neck, twisted it around and around with that tire iron like he liked to do until he died. And while he was doing that, Simple Greg sitting on Charles' chest. What the fuck? Then Bill drives to an alley in downtown LA. They dump uh, Charles's naked body out there and they continue driving to hunting, Huntington Beach to find more victims. He told Simple Greg, I'm horny again. Let's do another. His biggest regret when he'll be caught later is that he uh, never got to uh, you know, get three victims in one day. That was what he really, really wanted to do. But he will get two uh, on this day. A few hours later, the early morning uh, hours of February 3rd, Bill and Greg start talking to James McCabe, their youngest victim, only 12 years old, Kid was waiting by himself at a bus stop when this terrible duo, this nightmare duo found him. His kid's older brother just dropped him off, gave him some money for the day. He wanted to go to fucking Disneyland. Simple Greg, Billy Gutterballs, then invite him into the van, quickly overpower him. While Bill rapes James, Greg drives around. around. Eventually, they park in a grocery store parking lot. Bill and Greg hold him down, beat him, strangle him with a shirt, crush his neck with a jack handle, take his money from his wallet, leave his body next to a dumpster in Walnut. Uh, James remains are, are, are on Walnut. Uh, James remains are found uh, a few days later on February 6th. Then just a few days later, Bonin is arrested, but not for what we want him to be arrested for, uh, for violating parole. They have no idea what he's up to. He spends almost a month in prison, 
released on March 4th, and then 10 days after he gets back out, he is at it again. March 14th, 1980. Bill murders 18-year-old Ronald Gatlin, another solo mission. Bill picks him up around 8.30 that evening. Ronald's dead naked body will be found March 15th near the juncture of the 210 and 605 freeways, you know, raped, beaten, strangled. Also wounds to the neck and right ear made by an ice pick. So brutal. LAPD at this point starts to think that these freeway killings are the work of one man separate from other bodies they've been finding. The victims have all been sodomized while still alive, uh, tied up with a nylon cord, all strangled. Just a week later, this freeway killer strikes again. You know, but they don't mention that to the public at the time. Uh, March 22nd, 1980, and no task force is put together at that time. March 22nd, 1980, the bodies of 15-year-old Russell Rusty Rue, 14-year-old Glenn Barker, found on the side of Ortega Highway, a.k.a. California State Highway uh, 74. Sandra Miller, Rusty's mom, last saw him 4 p.m., March 21st. He'd left to walk to the bus stop to go to work at a local restaurant. He may have accepted a ride because he was running late. His boss called at 6 p.m. to tell his mom he never showed up for work. Right away, she knew something was wrong. He was a responsible kid, never missed work before. His poor family. Four days earlier, Rusty's stepdad had sat him down to tell him how proud he was of him, that he was well-behaved, and that he worked hard. He later told the LA Times, how often do you tell a 15-year-old kid that you love him? I cherish the thought that I at least got that chance. Glenn's mother, right before he went missing, had ironically given him bus money for the specific purpose of him not needing to take a ride from a stranger. She'd heard about a lot of teen boys locally showing up dead, the murder's now starting to get a little more attention in the news, right? She's worried about him. Good reason. It appears, uh, you know, that Bonin killed these two solo. I think. Sources are super frustrating regarding a lot with this killer. No decent book, no really good investigative journalism or thorough documentary has ever been done on Bonin. Or on Bonin. The timeline uh, literally varies a little bit uh, from source to source. Basically, every single source lists it out like a little bit differently. Uh, both these victims sodomized, strangled. Just two days later, March 24th, 1980, Bill and his third wizard's apprentice now, 17-year-old William Pugh, go hunting. How these two Bills ended up prowling together is uh, so insane. Earlier in March, Bonin had offered the 17-year-old Pugh a ride home after leaving a party at a mutual acquaintance's house. Pugh accepted the ride, climbed into William's fucking creepy-ass murder van. As Bonin drove, he suddenly asked Pugh straight up, you know, do you want to have sex? Pugh was taken aback by this question, chose not to answer, Freaked out now. When Bonin slows down the van at a red light, Pew attempts to throw the door open and flee, but as he reaches for the handle, Bonin grabs him by his shirt, pulls him back and keeps him in his seat. The light turns green. Bill hits the gas. Pew had missed his chance to get out of there. Then instead of putting a gun to his head, Billy Gutterballs confesses everything to Billy Pew. Tells the teen that he liked to abduct young teens, liked to sexually abuse, torture them, rape them before strangling them to death, often with their own t-shirts. Just confesses everything. Pugh says nothing. Then Bonin goes on to assure Pugh that although he wanted to rape, beat, and murder him, he would not. Why? Because too many people had seen them leave the house party together and he'd likely get caught. This guy really is so fucking crazy. Bonin then drives Pugh home with no further incident after telling him all this. Then for reasons nobody understands, these two bills stay in touch. How, how exactly it came to be that Pugh joined Bonin just weeks later and had a hand in another you know, young gay man's death, not quite clear. Instead of going to the police, this other Bill apparently became intrigued by the idea of going on a little drive and raping and murdering another boy. What the fuck? How did Billy Gutterballs get so many to go along with all this? The night of March 24th, less than a year still into Bonin's murder spree, the two pick up 14-year-old Harry Todd Turner in Hollywood. Bill and William lure Harry into the van by offering him $20 in exchange for sex. 
Harry had just run away from a boy's home. He was broke. He was hungry. Bill then ties him up, rapes him. William Pugh beats him at Bill's urging. Then Bill strangles him. And then Bonin bit and, quote, mutilated his penis. Harry's naked body found March 25th in an L.A. alley. March 24th, back up a day, 1980, the Orange County Register releases their first story of a serial murderer dubbed the Freeway Killer. Reporter J.J. Maloney worked for the Register. The Freeway Killer was his first big assignment. He later wrote, he didn't have a name, so we called him the Freeway Killer. He was a murky presence cruising up and down the freeways of Orange County and neighboring counties, stalking the dimmed Tinsel byways of Hollywood, picking up those sad youngsters who came there in search of a dream and found a nightmare instead. It's a good writer. One day I came across an envelope of clippings labeled dead gay boys. These were the boys being strangled. The sparse articles made me wonder where the label came from. A youth found dead and strangled with no name, no history, no clues to the crime. How do you write him off as a quote, dead gay boy? And why did no one seem to care? No outcry, no task force to catch the killer. At the paper, no one was assigned full-time to pursue the story. I talked to Olson, the Metro editor, he agreed that it could be an injustice to the victims to even unintentionally imply they were homosexuals since that might tend to trivialize the crimes. A lot of people would turn up their noses and say, so what? Again, homosexuality sickened so many people, even in Southern California, that a lot of people just didn't fucking care these, these kids were being killed. You know, just, just when they assumed they were gay. Maloney continues, it quickly developed that there were many more murders than the newspaper suspected, that the police were trying to keep a lid on the case to avoid another public fiasco such as had been experienced with the Hillside Strangler case, which had mortified the LAPD. The police told me that the strangulation of young men was a normal byproduct of the large homosexual community in the Orange County, Los Angeles area. Uh, uh, what was that? Uh, uh, come again? The strangulation of young men is a natural byproduct of a large homosexual community? Was that officer, was that officer really that dumb? I, I have to think he was. Fucking idiot, just... Look, of course, uh, there's a lot of young dead boys who've been strangled. That, that's just what a lot of gay men do. They just they strangle boys. It's natural. If you live around a lot of gays, then, you know, whether you know about it or not, you live around a lot of dead strangled boys as well. I mean, they don't, they don't have any decency, no sense of morality, uh, no conscience. <laughs> How could they? You know, they're, they're gay. Uh, Maloney continues, I obtained data on causes of death in California and the nation and determined that strangulation of males between 12 and 25 is relatively rare. The rate in Southern California between the years 1972 and 1980 was about 15 times the national average. Furthermore, the murder rate among homosexuals was, if anything, lower than the murder rate among heterosexuals. Fucking love this reporter. Relying on data, on facts, right? When making, when making statements, not just acting like that fucking one cop and saying stupid shit, but a lifestyle that, that cop clearly did not understand on any level. Oh, I wonder what other pearls of wisdom that cop he spoke with would dispense. If asked, you know, other sensitive questions. Well, of course, there are a lot of boat break-ins around Long Beach. A lot of Cubans and Puerto Ricans live around there now. They like to swim. <laughs> they like to break into things that float. It's natural. It's what they do. They're from islands. Yeah, there's a lot of crime at night in Inglewood. Large African-American population. They can sneak around easier at night because their skin's darker. It's natural. A darker one's skin, more sneaky shit one is going to do at night. Everyone, <laughs> everyone knows that. Uh, right after the register's first story on Bonin, they do another. Dr. Albert Rosenstein does a profile on the killer. Uh, does this before the police do, and it was pretty fucking spot on. He wrote, the guy who's doing these murders is crazy. Ding, ding, ding. Bingo, bango. Nailed it. Uh, the chance that he's been a mental patient at one time or another is very high. Check. The killer is a strong, clever white man in his late 20s or early 30s. Check. 
you know, he's kind of strong. Uh, if he were not strong, he could not handle the bodies. If he were not clever, he would have been caught already. Yeah, he could, yeah I don't know if he's that clever. He's kind of clever. If he were not white, he could not have picked up so many white youths. Okay, maybe at that time, yeah. As a result of some traumatic sexual experiences as a child, the killer has developed into a bisexual, but he never has become comfortable with the homosexual side of his personality. All right, check. He, he might have been bisexual, but seemed, seemed to be gay. Once his victims are drugged, he assaults them sexually in the back of the van. Not drugged, but checking it apart. After he's done that, he finds what he's done so repugnant that he feels he has to commit acts of sexual mutilation on their bodies after he's killed them. I don't know that he finds it repugnant. He really kind of loves it. But again, got a lot of stuff right there. Police Captain Walt uh, Ownby of the LA Sheriff's Department was furious about this article. He said that the freeway killer was a total figment in the minds of journalists. And he blamed the Orange County Register for creating unnecessary fear. LA law enforcement in the 1980s, not looking real good again. This suck. Uh, Captain Ownby said that there are often similarities between body dumps, but that doesn't mean it's a serial killer. He actually said, people are more inclined due to the recent history of multiple murderers like Son of Sam, Hillside Strangler, and the trash bag murders to read things into them. Maybe it's, maybe it's a sign of the times. I have to wonder if Walt here is the idiot the previous journalist talked to. Well, actually, let, let me tell you something. A lot of people don't really know how killers work. Uh, they'll think that just because a lot of bodies of people of a similar age and look and the same sex turn up in the same area in a short span of time and all been killed in nearly the exact same way, they want, they want to think it's a serial killer, but that's natural. The truth is, oftentimes a lot of people in the same area who kind of look at the same, they, they just all get murdered in the same way by a lot of different killer folks. Just, listen, just like how sometimes, you know how if you throw out a lot of pairs of dice on the same dice floor, they all they all come up snake eyes because <laughs> that, that happens all the time, right? It's natural. It's called a it's called a it's called a coinky dink. There's a lot of coinky dinks in life. Uh, is this guy the fucking commissioner? Is it like the mayor's son or something? How did he get this job? Uh, Billy Gutterballs, uh, you know, absolutely loves the attention. He's getting in the press now. He loves how the police are running in circles to catch him. Always one step behind. Likes to talk about the murders at work. Uh, told his fellow truckers, this guy is giving good guys like us a bad name. It feels like a line delivered with a wink, wink. Maybe, maybe with a slide whistle. <laughs> Crazy, huh? I just don't know how I, <laughs> I mean, I mean, some killers can keep getting away with this. Huh? <laughs> uh, as his press coverage increases, Bill keeps a scrapbook of his newspaper clippings in his murder van. Uh, that's that's going to look a little bad if he gets caught. That's going to look a little uh, Mark Bitchell Twitchell level of stupid. Uh, April 2nd, 1980. My dad turns 27. He was in Alaska. I saw a photo of him with a cake and uh, me and my mom and uh, it doesn't look, doesn't look like he was doctored. So, okay. All right. Pretty sure he didn't kill that day. April 10th, 1980. Bill murders another boy by himself. 12.15 p.m. He picks up 16-year-old Stephen Wood. Stephen's naked body found on April 11th in an alley behind an industrial complex near the Pacific Coast Highway, right? PCH, on Long Beach Freeway. Stephen had been tied up, beaten, raped, and strangled. April 29th, 1980. 9.15 p.m. What did I say? B.M.? Why would I, <laughs> 9.15 p.m. Uh, Billy Gutterballs works with uh, Mr. Magic Butts again. He and Vernon cost 19-year-old Darren Lee Kendrick in the parking lot of a Stanton supermarket while the poor bastard was working. Darren was collecting carts in the parking lot. Bill approached him, lured him into the van with the promise of selling him drugs. Darren's naked body will be found the next morning in an industrial park in Carson near the Artesia Freeway. Been raped, strangled, tortured with poison. Autopsy also found evidence, uh, yeah, autopsy, excuse me, not also, but also, autopsy found evidence, forced to ingest chloral hydrate. And it left, uh, you know, chemical burns on his mouth, chin, chest, and stomach. And then Darren actually killed by an ice pick to the right ear, which caused a fatal wound to his upper cervical spinal cord. Bonnie getting more savage. 
Well, actually, he would say Butts did that later. But man, just brutal, brutal. These, uh, these kids mean absolutely fucking nothing to these guys. May 18th, 1987, 17-year-old Lawrence Sharp's body found in a trash bin behind a service station in Westminster. He'd been killed six days earlier. Bonin's been at it, you know, roughly a year now, almost a year. And while he won't be convicted for all of these killings, thought to have now raped and killed at least 19 young men and boys. This kill is a little bit different. He and Lawrence were in a relationship of sorts. Bill had started dating Lawrence between April 10th and May 18th. He'd been seen coming and going, you know, from his apartment, multiple occasions. And one day, Bill decided he just didn't want to be with Lawrence anymore. He later confessed, I just got up one morning and decided I was tired of him. I just got tired of having him around. So I decided that I should kill him. Said it real casual. Just simple as that. Why break up with someone when you can just kill him? I feel like a lot of people just don't think about how, yeah, you could break up with someone. It might be messy, but you could also, you could just kill him. Uh, May 19th, 1980, 14-year-old Sean King vanishes. Another confirmed Billy Gutterball murder. Sean's mom will uh, later write a letter to Bill begging him to tell the police where Sean's body is so she can have him buried by Christmas of 1980. He will tell the police, but not because he felt bad for Sean's mother. He even made sure to say that. He said he did it because he wanted a hamburger. Change for information, right? He'd be given the hamburger he wanted and he wouldn't be tried for Sean's murder because they had enough other murders to pin on him. What a piece of shit. Uh, nine days after dumping Sean's body, Billy Gutterballs invites 19-year-old James Monroe to come move in with them. His final accomplice, Dark Wizard Apprentice, number four, James had been kicked out of his house his house in Michigan, had hitchhiked his way out west. James said yes because he thought Bill was a good guy, really normal. And then Bill helped him get a job at Dependable Driveway, a trucking company. Bonin continuing to love the media coverage of his kills. Every day when he wakes up now, he drives over, grabs the closest, you know, or to the closest place as a copy of the Orange County, Re- Orange County Register uh, to see if the police are onto him. He's obsessed with tracking their progress towards the end of Bill's days of killing law enforcement was, of course, you know, growing pretty desperate to find him. Getting a lot of bad press. Orange County investigator Bernie Esposito told the Orange County Register, you went home at the end of the day and held your breath that the damn phone didn't ring with another one. Some of them were stabbed. Most of them were strangled. But the thing that stands out in my mind is the pain he inflicted on these boys and the callous disregard he had for them. He treated them as a sex object that they're ju- uh, that was just there for his gratification. I looked across the breakfast table of my 14-year-old son and just imagined how I would feel if the police came knocking at my door in the middle of the night, told me that my son had been brutally murdered and left in some field like a bag of trash. Good officer Esposito forms a task force with four other law enforcement officials to try and catch the man they now identify as a serial killer. Meanwhile, earlier Bonin victim David McVicker, remember him? The kid Bonin let live, the one he said he'd see again. He and his mom are following all the media coverage intensely. He recognized a pattern to these assaults. More and more, he keeps thinking the highway killer or the freeway killer, excuse me, is Bill Bonin. The more details that are released to the public, uh, the more certain he is that Bill Bonin is a serial killer terrorizing the LA and Orange County areas. When Esposito's task force gives out a tip line and tells residents to call in with any and all suggestions, to call in with uh, any guesses as to who the killer might be, McVicker calls. He tells police he knows exactly who the killer is. And Bonin's name now given to Esposito and other members of the task force. McVicker said, I just kept reading the newspapers. Every time I would just read these stories about these kids coming up dead, it was just like a, in my stomach, I could feel this. I knew what they went through. Finally called the sheriff's department and said he's supposed to be locked up, but he's not. On June 2nd, 1980, 5.40 p.m., Billy Gutterballs, evil henchman number four, James Monroe, or they're driving the, the kill van through Downey, the death van. They pick up 18-year-old Stephen Wells, who's hitchhiking Bonin's last victim. While they uh, drive, Bill asks Stephen, hey, what do you think of gays? Stephen responds, oh, they're okay because I'm bisexual. Bill says, oh, really? And then he drives him, uh, you know, back to his apartment. Steven initially consents to having sex with Bill in exchange for 200 bucks. He allows Bill and James to tie him up 
Then while he's restrained and vulnerable, the two steal his money, beat him savagely, and rape him. Certainly wasn't consenting any longer at this point. Then Bonin's MO, uh, Bill strangles him with his own shirt. They put his body in a cardboard box, carry it to the van. Bill later confesses, both me and Jim beat him up prior to killing him. He said he wouldn't tell anyone just to let him go. When we finally got around to killing him, we put a shirt around his neck. I twisted it and he was strangled. James Monroe would later claim he had no involvement in this murder. Said he went to the store while it happened. Sat in the living room watching TV. Uh, James said he did ask, or right, right before it happened, he said he did ask if Bill was going to hurt the boy, to which he replied, hey, it's too late. I already got him tied up, so I'm going to kill him. Then James said that Bill kept screaming at Stephen, shut up, you're going to die. And then he killed him. Best case, James did nothing to help keep this kid alive. 8 p.m., the two drive to Vernon Magic Butt's house. He's, he's probably, you know, home working on like a new awesome trick. Maybe, maybe like cutting a rabbit in half. Something dark and weird that wasn't actually magic. Like he would just grab a live rabbit, kill it by cutting it in half, then hold up, you know, the two halves of the rabbit in each hand and be like, ta-da, magic. Uh, I don't think that's a magic trick, Vernon. You just, you just fucking killed a rabbit. Yeah, but I said, ta-da, at the end. I think it takes a bit more than that, bud. Oh, oh, really? Uh, Vernon Butts will later claim he now showed James uh, ID cards to their previous victims. James, part of their fucked up little club now. James and Bill drive to Huntington Beach now, leave Stephen's body at the back door of a gas station. James later confesses, Bonin told me that he was the freeway killer, that he had other partners out there who helped him kill, that he killed 45 people. I got scared and I started to cry. He came up to me and told me to stop crying because he's not going to hurt me unless I ran or called the police. Stephen's remains found on June 3rd. The police had just missed catching Bonin here. They'd put Bill under surveillance on June 2nd, right after they left Bill's house to dump the body of Stephen Wells. The surveillance team shows up. May 28th, police had arrested henchman number three, William Pugh, for auto theft charges. William told them what he knew. This is how the surveillance team ended up uh, you know, going after Bonin. One of his accomplices finally ratted on this walking nightmare. He identified the freeway killer as you know, Bonin, a truck driver living in Downey. Pugh told officers he'd accepted a ride home from Bill. During the ride, he talked about killing young boys. He left out the part about him helping kill Harry Turner. Uh, the police looked into Bonin's records, quickly think they may have found their man. His record lists uh, charges for kidnapping, sodomy, child molestation, forcible oral copulation. These attacks took place between November 1968, 19, or January 1969. Police also saw he spent time at a psychiatric hospital, uh, was released from prison in May of 1974 when the officials found him no longer dangerous. But then less than a year later, back in prison for raping another boy. Uh, you know, but didn't, didn't uh, yeah. The, the police also talked to his neighbor, Everett Frazier, the neighbor uh, that threw parties, parties where he met the first two henchmen. They showed Everett a map of how close Bill's place was to the di disappearance site of a victim. Everett apparently now realizes his friend is the killer, tells the task force, okay, get your pencils out, get, your, get out your pads of paper. He's willing to tell them everything he knew. Detectives now start watching Bill, waiting for him to make a mistake, a wrong move. For the next week, Bill is under 24-hour surveillance. But then, you know, almost at the end of that week, they start to wonder maybe they're following the wrong guy because Bill's not doing much. He just goes to work each day, doesn't return home home until late at night, often just uh, like to visit his friends after work. None of his accomplices are showing, around, or showing up around at this time. But then just a day after that first week, they do catch him. He just killed so frequently. They didn't have to wait that long, actually. On June 11th, 1980, the police follow Bill's van to Hollywood. They see him talk to five different young men standing on street corners Right? None of those, those men get in, but then he talks to another youth named Harold T. Harold enters his van. Bill then drives, parks in a vacant lot on Santa Monica Boulevard. Inside the van now, Bonin overpowers Harold, starts to sexually assault him. The police see enough through the front windows of the van to rush in, arrest Bill on charges of rape and sodomy. Then when they search the van, they find, you know, white nylon cord, three knives. They had narrowly saved Harold's life. 
Bonin's arrested, held on a $250,000 bond. So Hale Nimrod, he's fucking caught now, finally, for something real serious. Initially initially arrested for assaulting Harold, but you know, when they searched his van in his apartment, they quickly amass enough evidence to charge him with a bunch of freeway killer murders. From July 25th to the 29th, 1980, Bill is charged with 14 counts of murder, three counts of robbery, one count of sodomy, one count of mayhem. Accomplice Vernon Butts arrested on July 25th. Uh, he is facing six counts of murder, three robbery charges. So to try and get a you know good deal, not get the death penalty, he starts snitching on Bill and on the other accomplices. Vernon says that Bill drove the van so they could both have sex with kids, but Bill only uh, was the one who, who wanted to kill them. Uh, if, if a boy resisted, Bill would beat him up. He said he went along with it because Bill was hypnotic. And that creepy magician called the murder spree uh, a good little nightmare. Uh, Bill, meanwhile, refused to admit, admit anything at first. But then after realizing two of his former ride-alongs have now ratted on him, with two more likely to follow, he knows he's not going to get away with uh, being able to lie about it all. So he just casually confesses now to horrifying details of 21 murders. He said, like he was talking about doing laundry, oh, they would try to stop me from stabbing them and I would just stab them. I stuck them in different places with the knife because I didn't know where to stab. You know, I didn't know where any vital organs were or anything like that. Detective Esposito disgusted by his confession. He later said, the thing that struck me was he was sitting there telling us in graphic detail about how he brutalized, sexually abused, murdered these young boys like he was talking about yesterday's news. There was not a policeman in that room who did not want to kill Bonin to hear him talk about those kids. You're in there trying to hold in your puke. Do your job. Prosecutor uh, Sterling Norris will say, this guy was impassioned about what he did. He loved it. Listening to his confession was like sitting in a room of horrors. Here we are talking about killing kids, killing one, throwing them out like a piece of trash, and then going back to get another. It made me sick. Uh, Bill was now set to have two trials. Some of his victims killed in Orange County, others in Los Angeles County. His first trial takes place in Los Angeles. July 31st, 1980, accomplice James Monroe, henchman number four, arrested in Michigan. He's charged with aiding Bill in the murder of Stephen Wells, and he'll get 15 years to life for that. August 22nd, 1980, henchman number three, Simple Greg, arrested in Texas. Charged with murdering Charles Miranda, James McCabe. Receives two counts of robbery and one count of sodomy as well. August 28th, 1980. I'm, I'm sorry, October 28th, 1980. Uh, henchman number one, Mr. Magic Butts. Charged with murdering Mark Sheldon, Robert uh, Wirostek, and Darren Lee Kendrick. Charged with 17 counts of conspiracy, kidnapping, robbery, sodomy, forcible oral sex, sexual perversion. On October 28th, 1980, simple Greg henchman number two, found guilty of murder and seven other felonies. All but one of these motherfuckers are either dead or still in prison now. Hail Nimrod. Uh, Bonin's accomplices learned that in California, 1980, a murder with special circumstances such as robbery, torture, and rape came with the death penalty. That gave them incentive to make, uh, you know, please plead guilty, receive life sentences in exchange for testimony. They gave details about how Bill was gleeful when he tortured children. One of them said Bill loved the sounds of their screams. Yeah. January 2nd, 1981, Bill pleads not guilty to all charges at a preliminary hearing. This was surprising because he'd already confessed, discussed the murders at length with police. Uh, Vernon Butts also pleads not guilty, which surprises everybody, to all the charges against him, despite being offered a lesser sentence for testifying against Bonin and taking a plea deal. No one seems to understand really what the fuck was going on here. Who knows? We're not dealing with rational, logical people. January 9th, 1981, CBS reporter David Lopez does a jailhouse interview with Bonin, where Bonin further details the murders. He told Lopez, I couldn't stop killing. It got easier with each one we did. Bonin said he would only interview, uh, do the interview if Lopez didn't report everything he told him. You know, because he's uh, on trial for his life. What a fucking moron. Confessing to all these murders again while having pled not guilty. Uh, Lopez agreed to get the story. He never took notes, but afterward he felt like he remembered everything Bill told him. 
Uh, one of the things, you know, uh, Bill told him was that if he was, you know, currently out, he would definitely be doing it again. He'd get right back at it. January 11th, 1981, Vernon Butts hangs himself inside his jail cell at the LA County Jail. Ta-da! The part-time magician's final trick. He made his worthless consciousness disappear. Uh, this happened after four previous suicide attempts. Sounds like guards were watching him about as closely as those guards in New York watched Epstein when he got murdered. I mean, hanged himself. Uh, if my dad killed anyone in this episode, I hope he killed Mr. Magic Butts. Because I don't know, you know, you know, maybe he did. I don't know where he was on January 11th, 1981. October 20th. Uh, 1981, jury selection begins for Bill's first trial in L.A. County. His case actually involves 44 killings from related murders, although he was charged with 16, the ones they had the most evidence for. Uh, the Napa Valley Register asked the family members of victims how they felt about the upcoming trial. Barbara Bean, Stephen Wood's mother, said, how could somebody do what he's been accused of? It's like a nightmare. Lavada Gifford, Sean King's mother, said that she uh, copes by the grace of God and my family, my friends, and the fact that my little boy was a Christian. He's in heaven. He can never be hurt again. November 4th, 1981, Bill Bonin's first trial begins. In his opening statement, lead prosecutor Sterling Norris describes Bonin saying, he was the leader and he chose weak people he could use. Bonin was the torch who lit the fire. He has this leadership ability to get them to follow and they do what he wants them to do. They had a mountain of evidence against him. Photos, uh, similarities in killings, green fibers from the courts used to restrain his victims. Uh, star witnesses, right? The three surviving henchmen. Throughout the trial, two of his henchmen, Simple Greg, James Monroe, Describe how right after Bonin's arrest, he encouraged them to start going around and grabbing anyone off the street and killing them. He wanted to trick police into thinking they had not caught the freeway killer. The defense's main strategy was to place the blame on others. Bonin's attorney, Earl Hansen, argued that Vernon was the mastermind. Vernon Butts, not Bonin. The defense called Bill's awesome mom, Alice Ben, to testify for him. She must have been so pissed. Uh, you know, she's missing lucrative bingo opportunities. She testified about how the childhood abuse, about how her father molested Bill. She uh, said she was disappointed in him also uh, because he was gay. That seems unnecessary to say. Uh, Bill's brothers also testified for him. Bobby Jr. testified about their abusive father, Bobby Sr., who was now dead. Polly B. testified about, you know, uh, picking up hitchhikers with Bill. Said Bill never harmed any of them. Uh, he didn't mention Bill molesting him when they were kids. Must have, must have forgot. Must have slipped his mind. Bill's neighbor, Everett Frazier, also testified about how shocked he was to find out the truth. He thought Bill was a respectful friend. The defense's main strategy was to attack the credibility of the prosecution's witnesses and use mental health arguments. Hansen said Bill killed because of a lack of nurturing in his childhood, which led to confusion about the differences between violence and love. You know, reminds me of what we talked about earlier. His repression of the abuse forced a detachment in the use of fantasy and denial and more primitive defenses to protect himself. Prosecution fired back that plenty of people face terrible abuse and hardship during childhood, and they don't turn out to be child rapists or murderers. Valid. The defense psychologist testified that Bill couldn't tell the difference between violence and love. His parents never showed any physical affection for him, only beatings and sexual abuse. He had no happy memories, and that was normal for him. Now, what if, what if, what if that was true? What, what if you actually couldn't tell the difference between violence and love, like, at all? I don't think it's 100% true with Bill, because if he really could not tell the difference— why didn't he beat the fuck out of and rape and kill his friends? But I do think that cycle of abuse, you know, fucked him up like we talked about earlier. And his brain just was never properly programmed to have healthy sexual expectations and interactions. Uh, the prosecution psychologist argued that Bonin did have impulse control. He knew right from wrong, uh, chose to kill young boys. He loved it, wanted to continue doing it. I agree. If he had no impulse control, like the defense also argued, uh, you know, he would have been out killing willy-nilly, broad daylight, round coworkers, while getting gas for his murder van. Uh, he didn't do that because he, he knew if he did, he'd get caught. So he did choose to control his murderous impulses, like with one of his henchmen. We decided not to kill them. So, you know, he had, he had some 
impulse control. Uh, CBS reporter David Lopez chose to testify, despite not having to, despite being protected by shield laws to not share the confession Bonin had given him when he conducted that jailhouse interview with Bonin before the trial. Uh, when Bonin made that off-the-books confession to him, uh, Lopez decided to fuck over Bonin's uh, wishes and testify, even though this might make it harder for him to get similar interviews going forward with other criminals because he felt that he had to do his part to keep Bill off the streets forever. He testified about how Bill's account, uh, or, or about Bill's account of Stephen's death, how Bill told him he'd raped Stephen, dragged him to another room uh, where Vernon was waiting afterwards. Bill told him Vern got real weird that night, stuck ice picks in his head. At the end of the trial, Prosecutor Norris gave an impactful closing statement. If just one of these victims could take the stand and tell you about the humiliation, the degradation of ending his life this way, there would be no question what the result ought to be. Just as Mr. Bonin drove the van of death, picking up these young kids, I ask you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, to drive the van of justice and tell him, get in, Mr. Bonin, your days of killing are done. Nice. Fuck yeah, bro. That was, that was, uh, that was good. That van of justice line. Come on. Drinks are on me. If we ever meet and you're still around, Sterling Norris. Also, how great is this? On the scheduled day of the defense attorney's closing arguments, Bonin got his ass beat in prison badly. So bad they had to reschedule because he was in the hospital. The trial would not end for him well in any way. January 5th, 1982, after eight days of deliberation, the jury found Bill Bonin guilty of 10 murders. In February of 1982, simple Greg sentenced to 25 years to life for his crimes. March 12th, 1982, Bill Bonin sentenced to death for his crimes in Los Angeles. Bill sat passively as the judge read his death sentence. The jury reported that they were pleased by the sentencing. In a statement, the judge said the defendant, William George Bonin, is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, or indeed beyond any possible or imaginary doubt, of the murders of 10 young men, 10 sadistic, deliberate, unbelievably cruel murders with malice afterthought, or, or, or sorry, with malice aforethought. Uh, March 1982, James Monroe charged with second-degree murder, receives 15 years to life. March 22nd, 1982, Bill Bonin received at the San Quentin State Prison to prepare for a second murder trial in Orange County. May of 1982, henchman number three, William Pugh, sentenced to six years in prison for voluntary manslaughter. He'll walk free in 1985 after three years and not sure where he goes after that. August 26, 1983, Bill convicted of murder, sentenced to death for the Orange County crimes. Uh, he's convicted of four murders in Orange County, Dennis Fox, Glenn Barker, Russell Rue, and Lawrence Sharp. Bill is unhappy that the judge handed down a second death sentence. In a later interview, he said, he told me I was, I was sadistic and guilty of monstrous criminal conduct. I don't think he had any right to say that to me. I couldn't help myself. It's not my fault I killed those boys. Oh, man. Same old story. It's not, it's not my fault. Typical serial killer blame game bullshit. If these murders were not Billy Gutterball's fault, then no murder is anyone's fault. Over the next few years, Bill's legal team launches all sorts of appeals. Uh, his appeals will run out in 1996. Also, in 1996, during a radio interview, uh, when Bill was asked what his message was to all the families of his victims, he said, they feel that my death will bring closure, but that's not the case. They're going to find out. Cold-blooded until the end. Bill Bonin is executed February 23rd, 1996. In the execution chamber at San Quentin State Prison, 49 years old, killed via lethal injection. Before being executed during his time in prison, Bill published a book of short stories. Uh, also had an exhibition of abstract paintings at a Seattle art gallery. Why was that allowed? Fuck that art gallery owner. Also sent letters to the families of his victims. This is so bad. He told one mother, wrote a fucking letter to the mother of one of his victims, told her that her son was his favorite because he was such a screamer. 
Holy shit. He should have never been allowed to send another letter or have another visit or any privileges after that. Such a piece of shit. Never once apologized for his actions. Uh, outside the prison when he died, hundreds of death penalty protesters came to demonstrate their opposition to his execution. And to them, I say, fuck off. That guy? You're going to protest that guy being killed? Why not go protest someone's death who might be innocent? Why protest a, a guy who confessed to so many brutal murders? That, the night he died, Sandra Miller, Miller, the mother of victim Russell Rue, told LA Times, I just can't wait to see him take his last breath. I think they ought to give him over to the victim's parents and David. We'd fix him. Fuck yeah, Sandra. Just about 100% sure I'd feel the exact same way. Uh, I'd sign off on having his death be a pay-per-view event. Let hyenas tear him apart. Maybe robots with giant dildos get to try and fuck him to death. Split all the money between victims' families and law enforcement training and tools to help catch future Billy Gutterballs. Uh, the David she's referring to here is a living victim, David McVicker, right? Who stood beside her, hugging her because um, her son could not. Sandra's son, Rusty, actually opposed the death penalty. She said he believed anybody who killed anybody ought to be helped. I wonder, had he lived, would he have held on to that belief? David told the reporter, I have to see it, the execution. It will change the mental videotape in my head. I can see him dead. I can see his body carried out. He can't rape me anymore. He's dead. Palm Spring and uh, Coachella Valley's Desert Sun newspaper, the Readers, they then give their thoughts on his impending execution. We have before us a murderer who was murdered, uh, who has murdered innocent young people. I don't think he has a right to live. If it was my son who he'd, he'd killed, I would want him to die. I think the Almighty God believes that too. Another one, uh, Bonin killed all these kids, and who knows the pain that they felt? He should die in, the, in that kind of pain or worse. Another one, uh, one thing is for certain, and that is anybody that commits murder and gets the death penalty won't murder again. Yeah, amen. Uh, Bill was the first California inmate to be executed by lethal injection, only California's third inmate to be executed since 1976. Took a lot in the land of bleeding hearts to get the public angry enough to come to a general agreement, right, that some motherfuckers just need to die. Uh, Bill spent his last day visiting friends, gross, reading his mail, also gross, and talking to his attorneys. He was visited by James uh, Ramos, a public defender, uh, Alexis Skriloff, a supposed biographer who never wrote a book about him that, I'm, that I can find, and Ben Aronoff, a former prison guard who is now his buddy. Ben hugged Bill goodbye, said he loved him more than anyone in his entire life. What the fuck? According to Alexis, uh, she and Ben saw a different side of Bill. His inner child came out. He was caring, giving to those who were close to him. He had so many challenges as a child, it was impossible for him to be a normal, functioning adult. Well, agreed. Maybe damn near impossible for him to ever become a normal functioning adult, but probably pretty possible for him not to rape and torture victim after victim. You know, none of his attackers did to him what he did to his victims. You know, they say, never say never, but I would never befriend a human turd like Bill Bonin. Why? Go charm someone else, you fucking demon. Uh, 6 p.m., February 22nd, 1996, Bill is escorted into his death watch cell. For his last meal, he eats two large pepperoni and sausage pizzas, three pints of coffee ice cream, and 18 Coca-Colas. Yep, 18 of them, 18 Cokes. I had to triple check that. It's on the California Department of Corrections website. Maybe, maybe he'd really, really like to burp. Maybe he really wanted to go out with the worst stomachache of his life. Uh, that night, he was visited by the Catholic chaplain, gave his final words to the warden. He was resigned when he met the chaplain. 11.30 p.m., he gave the following official last words to warden Calderon. That I feel the death penalty is not an answer to the problems at hand. That I feel it sends the wrong message to the youth of the country. Young people act as they see other people acting instead of as people tell them to act. And I would suggest that when a person has the thought of doing anything serious against the law, that before they did, that they should go to a quiet place and think about it seriously. Ah, thanks, Bill. Good talk. That's great advice. Good job. 
11.45 p.m. after the chaplain visits and his last meal is uh, eating, he walks into the execution chamber. I imagine, imagine he probably farted, belched aggressively on his way there. 18 Cokes, two large pizzas, three pints of ice cream. He wanted that execution chamber to smell real nice. Authorities put the prison in lockdown, blocked freeway ramps off uh, into San Quentin, blocked the roads into San Quentin, uh, village off warden Arthur Calderon gives the order to begin execution at 12.01 a.m. February 23rd. No witnesses allowed to see him until after he's injected with chemicals. His injection scheduled for 12.01, but delayed until 12.09 uh, because the nurses couldn't find a vein. His, his body was probably shutting down for some kind of pizza, ice cream, and soda combo shock. 50 people came to watch his execution, and boy, oh boy, were they in for a show. Billy Gutterball's Bonin, first given Valium before he goes into the execution chamber. Strapped to a gurney next, then he's pumped with sodium pentanol to make him unconscious, then given uh, pancuronium bromide to paralyze his muscles, and then his old former prison guard buddy, Ben Aronoff, sneaks on in and pours some fucking Whipple on his lips. Oh yeah, that crazy bitch is back. Welcome to Whipple Death Row Edition. Each can of the special recipe is made with four ounces of nitroglycerin, half a stick of dynamite, ten drops of Chuck Norris's blood, two swipes of a young Iron Mike Tyson's nut sweat, enough anabolic steroids to bring Barry Bonds back into a major league starting lineup, and enough meth to get ten truckers from Alaska to Argentina without having to stop for gas. When it runs out, they'll just drink more Whipple Death Row Edition and Fred Flintstone that shit the rest of the way. Woo! Don't like a scumbag like Billy Gutterballs whipple his way out of an execution? Then shut the fuck up! Throw back an 84-ounce can of Whipple Death Row Edition. Realize you can now time travel and teleport and send him back to the grave. Fuck you. Fuck your family. Drink Whipple. Now available in Juniper Berry Electric Chair and Cran Apple Firing Squad flavors. That damn Whipple interruption was just brought to you by Deadwatch. Deadwatch is a 501-3C nonprofit dedicated to solving dad-related crimes. Deadwatch stands for Dads Are Disappearing Where All the Corpses Hide. Hi, I'm Dan Cummins, host of Time Suck and Deadwatch founder. Did you know that an estimated 200 million plus Americans alone cannot account for their dad's whereabouts and the dates of either some or all of the freeway killer Billy Gutterball's Bonin's murders? It's scary, isn't it? Where was your dad on the night of April 5th, 1979? How about January 1st, 1980? March 21st, March 24th, 1980. Admit it. You don't know, do you? Maybe your dad didn't help Bill kill any of his victims, but what about on nights when literally anyone else in the world was murdered? Where was your dad then? Ask him. Hold him accountable. We here at Dad Watch are just trying to do what's right, and what's right is probably putting your dad behind bars where he belongs. Call 1-800-DAD-WATCH with any and all, you know, not sure what your dad was up to, information. Well, that was intense. Uh, we have some very interesting sponsors sometimes here on Time Suck. Uh, Whipple Death Row Edition sounds, sounds a bit dangerous. Deadwatch sounds legit. Of course it does. Now I'm the founder. Uh, anywho, no one, of course, poured Whipple on Billy Gutterball's lips. The final shot he was given was a potassium chloride injection uh, he, that stopped that cold heart of his. He was declared dead in three minutes, 12, 13 a.m. Sandra Miller, Russell's mother, witnessed his execution. She told the Hanford Sentinel, I watched him take a few gulps and then I could see the pulse on his neck stop. His face turned darker, went from purple to almost black. When I saw that he was dead, I just said, yeah, thank God he's gone. Mm-hmm. None of Bill's relatives ever claimed his body. He was cremated. His ashes scattered into the Pacific Ocean. Mark Gribben wrote in his article on Bonin, in the end, the remains of one of California's most notorious murderers was treated with a great deal more respect than he had for his victims. 
After he died, the people of California were given one final bond in insults when they learned that Mama Alice, old bingo hustler, had been cashing Bill's social security disability checks for over a decade while he was on death row. Probably made millions reinvesting it in uh, big money, you know, high roller bingo games. Alice told a newspaper she used the money to make $75,000 worth of payments on her home in Downey. Of course, that piece of shit did. Bill had been receiving the payments for his mental disability since 1972. The payments were supposed to end in 1982 when he was convicted. Prison officials notified the Social Security Administration he was incarcerated, but there was a clerical mess up and they didn't stop sending the money. Uh, Good job, Social Security clerks. Good catch on that one. In 2000, James Monroe... Uh, one of his evil wizard apprentices, up for parole, but Stephen Wells' parents protested vehemently and he remained in prison. James begged Stephen's parents for forgiveness, saying, I was just a stupid kid. If I'd have known that 15 years to life meant I was never going to get out of prison, I would have never pleaded guilty. During his time in prison, James wrote his own book titled Bonin, The Untold Story, eight short chapters uh, written horribly, detail things from his perspective and prove his innocence. In the final chapter, he gives a statement to all the parents writing, hello, I know by now that you've read my book about the case. Yeah, because you're at the end of your fucking book, you idiot. (laughs) Hello. I'm guessing by now you've read my book. Oh, the book that this fucking sentence appears in? You dumb son of a bitch. I hope that everyone who reads this will sit back, think about it, and look into their hearts to see if they can forgive me for my actions in this case. I hope Mr. and Mrs. Wells are able to get on with their lives now that Bonin has been executed. Mr. and Mrs. Wells, I am asking you to please forgive me for my actions. I know that I should not have helped Bonin kill your son, Stephen Wells. But honestly, I did not kill him. Bonin did. You just said in the previous sentence you helped him kill. Uh, Yes, by law, I'm just as guilty. In fact, I feel very bad for what has happened to all of these kids in this case. I hope to God that someday you will be able to look into your hearts to forgive me for my actions. If not, I will understand that also. But please believe me, I did not kill your son. Thank you. Thank you for this time. This guy's such a fucking idiot. He's such a phony fuck too. The most recent articles I can find on James come from 2014 when he was up for parole at the age of 53. He was denied parole for being a fucking idiot. This guy that wrote all this, uh, also he did a radio interview in 2009. He actually said on air that he had killed other victims, that he found killing young men and boys to be quote, enjoyable, and that he would kill again if released. This stupid son of a bitch said that he now knows how to get away with it. Uh, thanks for being honest, I guess, there, James. Good luck ever getting out now. He will not be eligible for parole again until 2029. Guessing he'll be turned down. Now, let's get out of here. I have one more simple Greg update, but I'm going to save it uh, until the very end of today's episode. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. William George Gutterballs Bonnet, the freeway killer, one of three. What a piece of work. Getting out of the military, Bill was arrested for sexually assaulting four young boys, went to a mental hospital, discharged, put in prison after he failed to respond to treatment. Not much later, released from prison because he was no longer dangerous. Clearly, that was not the case. Went right back to sexually assaulting little boys, got caught again numerous times. Maybe those pieces of shit should be locked up forever when they start uh, doing that stuff. Then a mix-up in court records allowed him to uh, go on a killing spree. After a year of so much murdering, Bill was finally caught after one of his evil wizard apprentices, William Pugh, sent the police in his direction and victim David McVicker also bravely told the police what he knew. A recently formed determined task force then arrested him on June 11th, 1980, saved another teen from also being murdered by the freeway killer. Billy Gutterballs would go on to have two different murder trials. He was found guilty of a total of 14 murders, 10 at the LA County trial, four at the Orange County trial, sentenced to death at both trials. 
Then on February 23rd, 1996, Billy hopped into that justice van. He was executed at 49 years old, hopefully bringing an end to the nightmares of the many parents of his victims. Bill ended up, uh, you know, he ended so many young lives full of so much promise just so he could have a few moments of cheap thrills. And then he paid the price for those thrills with his own life. Good riddance, Billy Gutterballs. You didn't deserve the childhood you had. No one deserves that. But in the end, I sure think you deserve the death you got. Time now for today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, like most serial killers, Bill Bonin had a tragic childhood. Physically and sexually abused by his father and grandfather. Father was a violent alcoholic. His mother neglectful, turned a blind eye to all the abuse. Too focused on bingo. Bill's childhood abuse, uh, abuse left him with scars all over his body, brain damage to his frontal lobe. In the end, I think he, you know, has to take responsibility for what he did, but his parents sure did not do him any favors. Sure pushed him along the path to becoming a serial killer. Number two, when Bill got out of prison in 1979, he purchased a green Ford van, turned it into his personal death van, removed the handles in the back, stocked it with knives and weapons, kept a scrapbook of all his killings inside the van. Almost every victim was kidnapped, raped, strangled inside that murder van. The fibers from the van carpet on their bodies would help lead to his conviction. Creepy dudes driving creepy vans. Maybe never accept a ride in one of those ever. Number three, from 1979 to June 1980, Bill killed as many as 21 young boys, actually possibly more, convicted of killing 14. These boys were between 12 and 19, most of them wandering alone, hitchhiking due to family troubles at home. Bill lured them into his death van, raped them, tortured them, strangled them, afterwards dumped their bodies on the freeway, side of the freeway like trash. That earned him the nickname, the freeway killer. Number four, Bill was assisted in almost every murder by four different accomplices. Vernon Butts, Mr. Magic Butts, James Monroe, uh, Simple Greg, Gregory Miley, William Pugh. Most of them were also young men, the same age as his victims. Uh, they enjoyed, you know, hurting, raping young boys just like Bill who showed them how to do it and uh, how to get away with murder for a little while at least. Number five, new info, May 26, 2016, LA Times shared the news that Simple Greg was dead. Beaten to death by another inmate at Mule Creek State Prison. The attack happened at 7.25 p.m. the previous day during the evening yard program. He was serving life, but with the possibility of parole, no possibility now. A little bit of prison justice. He was a regular rule breaker, prone to violence during his time in prison. Then that violence turned around on him pretty hard. At least one of those motherfuckers who inflicted so much violence on their innocent victims left this world with some of that violence directed back at them. Hail Nimrod. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Billy Gutterballs has been sucked. Fuck that guy. Uh, one of the three freeway killers might have to suck the other two someday. Might need to wait a bit for that horror, especially with a scorecard killer. Jesus. Right. Might need some palate cleansers. Uh, thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team for all the help in making Time Suck every week. Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley. Thanks to Olivia Lee for tackling the initial research this week. Uh, thanks to Bitelixer for keeping the Time Suck app running smooth. Logan, Art, Warlock, Keith, our creative director, creating all the merch at badmagicmerch.com and more. Thanks to Liz, the Enchantress Hernandez, running our Cult of the Curious Facebook private page, currently Cult of the Curious 2, along with her wonderful all-seeing eyes moderators and helping Logan with uh, socials, TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, on all that. Uh, next week, another topic voted in by the Space Lizards, Alcatraz, a different kind of true crime suck. Not sucking a famous prisoner, sucking a famous prison. Uh, we're going to suck the rock, also known as America's Devil Island. Alcatraz has a long history of 
Violence, as it was first seen by natives as a place of evil spirits, then it was turned into a 19th century military fortification, then a military prison, then the federal maximum security prison that we know of uh, today, know it as today. What made it so famous? What made it so famous that decades after it was closed, it's still a household name. Part of the mythos comes from uh, big name baddies that were stored there between 1934 and 1963. Al Capone, Machine Gun Kelly, uh, the very first public enemy, number one, Alvin Carpus, a.k.a. Creepy Carpus. Another reason was for uh, for its reputation of inescapability, which was challenged dozens uh, of t- or over a dozen times. Some of these escape attempts were pretty ingenious. Others were pure violence, with the worst culminating in the Battle of Alcatraz in May of 1946. Did anyone actually escape? What was it like on the rock? What were the rules? What did inmates spend their time doing there? Why did this little island in the San Francisco Bay become such a huge part of American history and folklore? Join us next week as we make our way behind the walls of America's most famous prison and the dirtbags that made it that way. Uh, Now let's head on over to this week's Time Sucker Updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker Updates. It is Jehovah's Witness Update time. That's all these updates will be. And we we didn't get to so many of them. Uh, Let's get right into it. First up, awesome sack and former witness who wishes to remain anonymous writes... Hail Savannah. Hail to you for covering the JWs. Like herself, I endured the indignities of being raised as one. 16 years in, over 25 years out. I'll try to keep this on point. Sorry, not sorry. My thoughts in no particular order. To be clear, JWs don't mind not going to heaven. They're much more uh, physical resurrection to a flawless life here is their goal. Related, my understanding is that prior to 1933 or so, all JWs thought they were one of the 144,000. There weren't 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses at the time. Rutherford Rutherford and co. then had to do some doctrinal emergency homework when their recruitment achievements clearly outstripped their beliefs. I also, yeah, came across that where it's like, yeah, they kept changing some things. Like other brands of Jesus Incorporated, they treat the Bible as a single document, so they tore out of context a few random scriptures to support the belief they hold now. Fun exercise. Like Dante, they had to figure out what to do with people who died without ever knowing about Jesus. So in this version of Paradiso, they get resurrected too. And they're given a choice to live forever as a 25-year-old Jehovah's Witness, uh, Jehovah's Witness or die. Kind of reminds me of Eddie Izzard's cake or death bit. By conservative estimates, they will run out of cake. Uh, there just won't be enough room for everyone at some point. According to a witness I know, people who partake of the sacrament uh, during their annual memorial service are rewarded with rolling eyes. No one believes them, but can't disprove it. Uh <laughs> Ask the same uh, Jehovah's Witness about the male-to-female ratio because it seems disproportionately female. He said, let me put it this way. Witness men do extremely well. So many hot ladies with so many ugly losers. <laughs> okay, Not being shitty. Uh, your response to this same episode um, to do a to a time sucker about how to deal with wackadoodle beliefs is super relevant to helping people out of this cult. Listen and ask questions. My parents' divorce when I was young was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. I now had people I could go to to be myself, to ask hard questions and get harder uh, answers. My father and his uh, parents saved my life just by spending time with me, listening to my nonsense, prodding me with uh, almost uh, Socratic style and inter- interrogatives. I believe I believe uh, this may work for political wackadoodle adherence too. Listen, openly invite them to show you why they believe what they believe, resist the urge to attack their sources, instead wait, ask them careful, challenging questions to open their minds. Witnesses called their religion the truth. My dad called it the lie. I'll keep my sob story short. My siblings and I endured sexual, physical, and psychological abuse for years. The sexual predator was quietly then shuffled off by elders, 
to another congregation until I'm guessing an angry witness found out about it and maybe called the police. The physically violent uh, witness uh, man my mother married eventually earned a spot as an elder himself. I used to think I was self-pitying by nature because I had so few good childhood memories, but then a few weeks ago, I found them tucked into weekly visits with my dad and his parents. And after I left the cult, Eureka. Being a witness is truly a joyless ex existence. Thus, I feel a true sense of compassion for them, kind of like they are rigorously and regularly abused distant relatives. I do believe their leadership should be sodomized to death with hot sporks. <laughs> Fun fact, the Watchtower trains uh, its witnesses to argue and to think critically of all claims not supportive of its own narrative, and then they hope these witnesses will, will, witnesses will never ever turn that skill on, the, on itself. Oops. Very grateful to you and Savannah for spotlighting this. Very grateful to a dude named Joe in Coeur d'Alene who told me he worked on some podcasts, been hooked on the bad magic stuff ever since. Thank you. And then please make my name anonymous to help me preserve my friendship with aforementioned witnesses. Thanks for sharing your story, Anonymous. Uh, we've been getting so many of them. So sorry you were also victimized like Savannah. Glad you are out living a more joyous existence now. And thanks for clearing up things a bit on the... Uh, People other than the 144,000 getting to be immortal too, but in a different way here on earth. I'll, I'll share uh, another update that spotlight, spotlights that more. Uh, here's one from a, from a Gare Bear. This one's rough. Uh, I think this fine sack is very brave for sharing this. Gary writes, I'll keep the last name out. Hello, oh, master of the suck. I have an update from the Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses episode that confirms the two witnesses rule. This was a hard episode to get through because it brought back some memories of my past. I actually witnessed the two witnesses rule with an even more evil twist. This will be a little long, so I apologize. In 2010, one year after I joined uh, the witnesses, my congregation had a new member. He was on parole, uh, having served seven years of a 25-year sentence for the confessed rape of a 14-year-old girl. This pig was on both the local, state, and, fed oh, and also federal sex offender lists. Based on these offender lists and the research I did on this monster, he was supposed to stay at least 1,000 feet away from any child under the age of 18 and 500 feet away from any female. Oh, any female of any age. Wow, huh. Uh, the elders of the congregation knew this. I voiced my concerns to them. They said they had a talk with him, told him to behave himself. The elders allowed this man to attend meetings inside the kingdom hall. He was allowed to socialize with anyone he wanted, including children. The elders said they made a decision not to tell the congregation because they were afraid he would be harassed. Fast forward to early 2011, this pig was assigned to go door to door, right? And, uh, you know, uh, as a missionary with a 14-year-old girl by himself. He was driving back to Kingdom Hall. They stopped at a local fast food place for lunch. I ran into them there, decided to join them for lunch. When they left to go back to the Kingdom Hall, I went to my car, found this monster raping the girl. The girl and I went to the elders, reported the incident. I was counseled separately in a room with no windows, no AC, Temperature felt like 110 degrees with 16 hours or for 16 hours with no breaks. They made me repeat over and over that I saw nothing. I only told them what they wanted to hear so I could leave. I went to the police, filed a report against the monster and against the congregation elders. The police went to the elders who told the police uh, there was no evidence. Uh, the girl filed the report because she was said that she, oh, said that the girl filed the report because she was mad at the guy. The elders then disfellowshipped me for going to the police. I was so thankful to be away from that cult. I was a member for four years before I left. Gary. Holy shit, Gary. That poor girl. And those fucking terrible elders. Misguided at best, evil at worst. What the fuck? Glad you went to the police. Uh, sorry, it doesn't sound like that girl got justice. I, I hope those elders and that rapist are in a hospital right now in need of a blood transfusion. 
Now, another awesome anonymous meat sack would like to clear up some theological misunderstandings I had about the witnesses and more. And they write, hi, Dan, I just wanted to thank you for this episode. I was raised as a Jehovah's Witness, and this was personal for me. I appreciate hearing the view of someone who was never one and listened to how uh, and listen to you talk about how crazy the beliefs are. I wanted to provide a bit more information and correct a couple things about me. I was raised as a JW uh, from three. I'm 33 now, baptized at 10. I was PMO for a couple years as I was a try uh, as I was trying to avoid losing my family, but I've been out for about a year now. I came from a very zealous family, all pioneers, elders, ministerial servants, etc. I am not currently disfellowshipped, but I am pretty much shunned anyways as I chose to walk away. 144,000. While it is true what you said that they believe only 144,000 will go to heaven, that's not really what they used to draw people in. They believe that the rest will live forever on a paradise earth where they will grow to perfection. All their dead loved ones will be resurrected. They use this to prey on people who have lost loved ones, including going so far as to writing them letters based off of obituaries. Jesus. They also love bomb new ones, anyone visiting. So people without families or ones who want to see the dead loved ones are more likely to listen. They also believe in a thousand years, Satan will be let out of a pit to test everyone again. Okay. Yeah, that is fascinating. I looked into that more based on a lot of these messages and what a weird loophole. Yes, the the witnesses believe that, yeah, only 144,000 chosen witnesses will go to the celestial kingdom of Jesus, like the true heaven. But they also believe that any other good witnesses, not part of that 144,000, will get to live forever as basically a 25-year-old on earth. So, you know, heaven. They just created like a second heaven to cover up this glaring problem of, you know, not being able to get enough new members because there's more than 144,000 in the congregation. They just they just built like heaven B. It's like there's like the bottle service, VIP section of heaven, and then earth heaven. Just, just you know, bend it to whatever helps marketing. Uh, marriage, divorce, the only grounds for divorce that they view as truly acceptable is adultery, not abuse or neglect or being married to a non-believer. Huh. I've seen women encouraged to stay with extremely physically abusive spouses and told to be submissive in hopes to win them over to being a witness. With non-believing mates, they also encourage the same. Be submissive. Okay, they may because a witness or return to being a witness. Uh, my ex-husband was abusive in many ways, thankfully not physically, but he was also extremely neglectful. I was not able to leave him because I chose to marry him. I had to stick to my vows. We were married a year after we started dating. He changed overnight as a lot do. My parents and family even hated him and the way he treated me, but I still wasn't allowed to leave. He left me. I was to remain single because I had no proof he slept with anyone else, although I had enough to assume he was cheating, but I wasn't free until he remarried a few years later. That's weird. You had to be single until he remarried in that congregation. Persecution. They love being persecuted. They constantly quote the scripture about Jesus followers being persecuted as proof that they have the truth. They show videos of persecution at conventions. So many, most former witnesses call it persecution porn. <laughs> Pretty funny term. Uh, modesty. Don't even get me started. I am naturally curvy. I have a giant, <laughs> I have a giant ass and a large chest. And I've had uh, some since I was a teenager. From the time I developed, I was not allowed to dress the same as other girls my age because it was inappropriate. And I could not tempt the older men. And there were a lot of creepy, gross older men. Even had a stalker from uh, the ages of 15 to 23. Nothing was ever done about it because he was a witness. He was talked to a couple of times, but I would still see him show up at places I was at all the time. My ex-husband was actually someone who was constantly being told his pants were too tight. What? <laughs> I fucking love that. Almost every meeting he was pulled aside. Oh my God, dude, come on. Look at your pants. You know your dick can feel that. Uh, judicial committees. I had my first JC at 19 for sexual misconduct, not actual sex, just some petting. 
They asked me about it in graphic detail, how I was touched, how many times I touched, did I orgasm, etc. And if you have sex, they will ask more. What positions did you use? I cried after leaving both of mine because it felt I felt humiliated. Thank you again for covering this topic. That's ridiculous. Thanks for again for covering this topic. So many people view the Jehovah's Witnesses as innocent and nice people, and there are a lot that are truly kind. But they also use that to their advantage. You can't be friends with them. They only want to convert you. Thank you also for bringing uh, the abuse, uh, attention to the abuse. So few people realize how bad it is. Children need to be protected. They are not protecting them. They are making their lives so much worse. I love listening to your show work. This one made me a bit sad, but I still loved it. Love, anonymous listener. Wow. Yeah, uh, so much crazy shit there. <laughs> Fucking, I can't believe they talked to your ex about how tight his pants were. And, and that they talked to you about like, you can't wear the same dress as the other girls because you're, you know, you're, you're giving the older men in the congregation boners. Like, it's just, it's all so fucking insane. It's so fucking insane. And the the heaven B, the the bonus heaven. Okay. Uh, now a message about a witness actually visiting the suck dungeon. I didn't know that a witness had been in the suck dungeon. Tells an awesome sucker also named Dan writes, dear Jesus Ranger Dan, apostate Dan here. Uh, May 25th, 2018, 1 p.m., you got a knock at the suck dungeon door from a Jehovah's Witness dude. Instead of evangelizing, I came to say I enjoyed the podcast. Um, uh, oh, I came to say I enjoyed the podcast, but my brother-in-law was a diehard fan. I was taken aback with how kind and generous you were with your time uh, that day. You certainly looked and sounded like a worldly person, yet behaved like a perfectly pleasant human being. In fact, you gifted me a NASA Flat Earth t-shirt and a Pootie and Juju mug. It's not an exaggeration to say you were my first social interaction with a non-believer that I wasn't trying to preach to or recruit. Instead of thinking you as the other, I saw you as a person that started my journey to escape the faith. Your pod, amongst others, reignited the love of learning I lost in elementary school because the world is ending. There's no point in focusing on schoolwork. I've developed love for critical thinking and scientific skepticism. I'm happy to report that I realized my old faith is a dangerous cult and formally left, though not without severe reprisal through the abuse of shunning. It socially murders you. Your entire social world sees you as worse than a literal pedophile since God can forgive their sin, but as an apostate, you knew the truth, yet betrayed them by leaving. I'm 30, uneducated, lost my career in construction because my boss was a witness, came up with an excuse to let me go. Even though I was a dedicated and rampant Jehovah's Witness my entire life, they turned on me the moment I started introducing valid criticism. Paper thin and conditional love, not worth having. I have to say I needed to hear what you said near the beginning of the show, hating the belief while loving the believer. To be honest, I have guilt for not realizing this idiotic cult for what it was sooner and wasting my life lending these morons my credibility. I was indoctrinated since birth, but still. I'm choosing to live life now. I'm starting local community college winter quarter. I'm seeking a master's in psychology to hopefully specialize in providing therapy for those who have suffered from religious trauma. Correction. While it was mentioned one time, the rank and file Jehovah's Witnesses are promised everlasting life on a paradise earth. Mm -hmm. Not mortal life on a paradise earth. Yeah, I, I did mess that up. Think California weather all over the globe. Perfect health. Strangely, no power tools for building homes. It's weird. See, uh, what does the Bible really teach? Chapter three, paragraph 15 in, in, uh, on the Jehovah's Witness site. Like paradise being promised to suicide jihadists, it's an incredibly powerful incentive that makes you squander life now because your real life will start in paradise. A check is in the mail type strategy. And if you keep doing exactly what, you know, we say you will, you'll probably get in. But the coverage of uh, witnesses overall was excellent otherwise and super funny. Oh my gosh, Dan singing the kingdom song felt so sacrilegious to me. That's why I love you guys though. Dan, I love you. Joe and Lindsay, love you. Uh, just have Zach buy me a pillow. We're platonic, but a man still has needs. 
And I promise not to evangelize to the rest of the crew unless they ask nicely. You've helped improve my life. If I can ever be a resource, I'm at your disposal. I'm glad I can now call all people, my brothers and sisters, you guys included, Danny. Danny, did you sneak some onions or some pollen or something in that fucking email? Uh, Last night when I first read it, it really fired up my allergies. I'm both so sad for what's been done to you and also so happy for what lies ahead for you. And even though I don't know you, I'm so fucking proud of you. So brave. I can see you got a big heart. I hope you find all the love the world has uh, uh, to show you. And it does have a lot, you know, that it can when it wants to. I hope some, uh, I hope some Lucifina type rips off your fucking tight ass jeans and fucks your brains out. No spib, no save. So many former mes- uh, member messages. Uh, let's end today with a different perspective from a current witness. They, they did not ask to remain anonymous, but I, I want to play it safe and keep them anonymous. They write, hey, Dan, just listen, uh, listen to the Jehovah's Witness suck. I am one of the witnesses and have been my entire life. There's too much to say. It's almost laborious to try and type it all. I love your podcast. I've been listening to your standup for years after your Here Come the Spoons bit came up on Pandora. And while later an ad ran for your podcast, the Amelia Earhart episode was my first. I've listened to everyone since. I can see where you're coming from when you say that we're a cult. I think that the reprehensible actions of others covering up sexual assaults are terrible. I do not back that at all. I do think, however, that this shortcoming of this religion is a mix of the ideals and the followers. I believe that some of the ideals are a touch radical. I do think some of the followers take it too far. Some people see the elders in the congregation as godlike, therefore negating the police and or government for anything. When criminal problems arise, some people go to the elders instead of the police, which is ridiculous. I wouldn't necessarily say this is a cover-up but instead someone on a power trip and someone else too ignorant to see what really needs to happen. I do believe that some of the ideals need reforming and some I do not agree with at all. Like, you know, the ban on gay gay marriage, certain drug usage, uh, sex, et cetera. I also think that I've lost little to nothing by living by these morals and ideals. Uh, Yes, there are some people that take this entirely too seriously and make it their entire life. But believe me when I say that they're like the 1%. Some of the ideals have really evolved the last few years, such as the college thing. It was suggested to not waste your time on higher education when you should work to pay for what you need and for your ministry and college is wasting your youth. Nowadays, it's taught to legitimately do whatever you want. College or not, it's up to you what path you want to go. I think that a lot of what is wrong with this religion is a mix of the ideals and purely ignorant people that blindly listen to whatever anyone says without critical thinking. Uh, It also upset me that you listened to the story of someone that had a bad experience but didn't share any of the good. I feel for Savannah, but that type of stuff isn't happening every day. You've glorified the bad, that legitimately rarely happens, albeit too much, but didn't mention any of the good. I'm happy to explain some things further if you're interested. Whether I disagree with you or not, I still love all your podcasts. I look forward to flying from Atlanta to Denver to see November. Keep on sucking, Alex. Alex, thank you for sending this in. I am truly glad you seem happy, truly. Uh, I, I did not include the good because honestly, I had a hard time finding any good that that wouldn't still be good. Minus the religion. Does that make sense? Like, like, do the witnesses provide good moral guidance in many ways for a lot of people? Yeah, I, I bet it does. Don't steal, don't kill, love thy neighbor. You know, that kind of thing. But but you can still be that person without all of the extra rules, the two witness shit, uh, that kind of stuff. Like, can you not? Without the tight pants, fucking weird speech. I try and do a lot of good things. And I don't think I'll ever be rewarded for any of it. I just want to be better. I've been bad. I'll be bad again, I'm sure, <laughs> moments. But overall, I want to do more good in the world and bad. I want to make the world a better place to live in because that's, there's just so much pain in it already and I don't want to needlessly add to that. But uh, I don't need to do it within within the context of all these other rules. And does, I don't know, does that make sense? I mean, can't you take all the good of the witnesses but strip out the two witness rule and get rid of shunning, disfellowship, et cetera? You can, it might destroy the whole religion, but you can. You can keep all the good, get rid of all the bad because, you know, 
I don't think God's making all these rules. We are. We can live a life of so much more love and so much less fear if we choose. It is our choice. I didn't, I didn't set out to make that suck a hatchet job. But the more I read, it, it just legitimately did make me very angry. I have no doubt there are a lot of great witnesses out there. You seem like one of them. But does a lot of members of an organization being great make the organization itself great? I don't think so. I hope the ideals you want reformed get reformed. You know, I hope the witnesses let go of the bad and keep the good. And if they do, then whatever, then okay. If the organization makes substantial changes, then yeah, okay, it can be good. I, I hope you continue to find happiness, you know, in or outside of this group. I think you would be a good person in all likelihood outside the group, just as well as in. I respect you listening to this episode and still sending that message. I think it speaks a lot to you, to your character being really, really good and strong. And, uh, and that's it for today. A lot of interesting thoughts. Thanks everyone for sending in your stories. Sorry, there were so many I wasn't able to get to. Hail Nimrod, everyone. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Thanks again for listening to a Bad Magic Productions podcast meets X. Please do not pimp out a murder van and torture and kill hitchhikers this week. It sounds like a lot of work in addition to being evil. So much easier and, and better just to lay on your couch or in a hammock. And put your headphones on and just keep on sucking. Add Magic Productions. B19. <laughs> Bingo! Fuck you, Myrtle and Gertrude! I win! Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 